Have you looked at the Boba Fett underoos lately? Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, the Star Wars saga began, and Kenner continues the excitement. Star Wars figure. The Empire Strikes Back starts with Jedi. Welcome to the Star Wars Collector's Archive podcast. It's the Cast. Newest news on the oldest toys, from bubble bath to belt buckles. 12 packs to 2 packs. New boss, alien bounty hunter. From the, from the, from the, from the, from the Star Wars collection. Watch out, watch We bring the world of vintage Star Wars memorabilia alive with informative features and personal collecting stories. Offer expires December 31st, 1979. An Octavista with Tempest The Supreme Master, the Emperor. Brought to you by the Star Wars Collector's Archive. The SWCA.com. With your hosts, Sky Payne, Steven Chewbacca, 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 and Steven B. Denley. November's Kivecast Vintage Pod is unlike any other, because the recent news of Disney buying Lucasfilm in episode 789 was just too big for Steven Sky to handle alone. So we called in the big guns and created a roundtable of vintage Star Wars star collectors from our very own Star Wars Collectors Archive. We got Gus Lopez, Chris Gullius, Ron Salvatore, and Tommy Garvey. We're all talking about the potential ramifications of the new movies on the market. We discuss what it means to become disney and reminisce about the announcement of Episode 1 in the mid-90s. But that's not all, folks. We keep the round table circle as we discuss the figure of the month, none other than the Fett Man himself. Are you ever curious about how the Rocket Fett got its name? About how many of them are there? About how they became worth in excess of $20,000? About how they were found in Cincinnati? All of these questions will be answered by our panel. We also have a buy nugget and a multifactorial unloved section. All this, plus about as much Dash Rendar, Sayo Bibble, and Dr. Alan Grant news as you could possibly take on the Kivecast Vintage Pod Super Megacast Roundtable. Wampa Wampa. Welcome to the Kivecast Vintage Pod for November 2012. That's right, Steve. It's just been uh, a crazy month. Uh, I, I've got all this work to do, but we're really excited because this is the month of the whole Disney and Episode 7, 8, and 9. And how are we going to celebrate that, Steve? With a true Knights of the Round Table uh, discussion. That's right. So we, we got this whole plan, and we'll, we'll give a little bit more uh, information once we kind of get to the break. Yeah. But, Steve, you know, I, I, I believe uh, in, in tradition, and so we at least have to get to the, the movie thought, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, my first of all movie thought is, you know, Boba Fett is just blessed in this hobby. Yes, he is. Because, you know, he's always got the premium. Everyone always thinks he's the coolest. Even your very own co-host rated him the coolest figure in the history. I know. It was a a shocker. And then it's his month out of all the months that had to be when Episodes 7, 8, and 9 were announced. Yep, you got pushed right out of that spotlight. Yeah, but still, it's like he gets married to this concept. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, like, this was the month of FET is also probably the most exciting month in the history of the Kivecast, you know? Yeah, man, no doubt. But my whole point, and this is not, you know, I, I thought of this before I ever heard anyone else say it, but okay. other people have said it, Steve. But I All remember right. thinking this very distinctly when I was about 13 years old. Okay. And that is that Boba Fett is not a good bounty hunter. Hmm. How so? He just isn't. I mean, what does he do, right? Like he doesn't. I mean, even... yeah. If you go by his screen track record, he doesn't uh, really bear the. Uh, I mean, he, the strength that you would hope. Yeah. With all the uh, the hype. 
Okay, so even if so, if we accept the special editions, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Greedo does all the hard work. Greedo's right. the guy who gets shot. Greedo's the guy who finds him. He yep. just stands there, looks cool, puts his hand on his gun. That's about it. Uh, then you go to Empire. Okay, he does a pretty good job of, of hiding. But then yes. he doesn't even capture them. He gets Vader to capture them for him. And then he <laughs> lets Vader do whatever he wants to him. And then he puts him on the ship like he did it himself. Oh, yeah. Taking all the credit. And then, and then he spends his whole life just hanging out at the court, you know, nodding, being cool. And yep. then, you know, of course, you know, his famous death scene where he screams and he sounds like a sissy. <laughs> so I, I, uh. I don't know. I just I remember thinking that when I was 13 years old because he was my favorite character, you know, just when I was six or whatever because he was yeah. so mysterious and cool. Right. Um, but I think that's kind of a – I think that's a good metaphor. And I think if there's any, any young women out there listening to us, Steve uh, – which is unlikely, but if if there are, <laughs> I'll say wait, wait for the crickets. <laughs> yeah, if there are, you know, often the guys who seem like they're just so deep and just quiet and like just so cool and handsome, like you just think if you'd only get to know them, you, you'd learn that they're just so amazing and profound. Uh, but most of the time, Steve, they're just kind of dumb. Oh man, well, see, I might fit into that category. <laughs> oh no, Steve, you're not cool. <laughs> Come on, I'm not, I'm not as cool as Boba Fett, but <laughs> Steve, no, I'm just kidding. Actually, you know, uh, before we get to the conference call, my my brother uh, Amos, the uh, he doesn't collect, you know, but he well he collects a little bit, but yeah. he listens to the show just because he likes it. Oh hey, and uh, he is your number one fan, Steve. Wow! Yeah, I'm number one fan. Awesome. Yeah, no, like he like can't wait to talk to you. He's already talking about when am I going to come on the show and stuff. Oh, and, sweet! And he's like, I don't know how he puts up, but like he's like, I wish I could talk to someone as cruelly as you talk to Steve. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, oh, do you have any trumping thoughts? Seeing as you completely whooped me with the power droids. No, man. I, I figured that that was my walk off. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm never gonna take take the bat again with the movie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, actually, uh, give me one second. I did have one back, okay. uh, when I was reading the Empire script. There's a, a description of Boba Fett that I was going to read. Okay. Uh, give, me, give me one second. I'll pull it up. Yeah, while you're, coming up, while you're bringing that up, I think that I might have to come up with some kind of drop for you know, Steve's script reading or something. Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it's something I've been thinking about because these early drafts have some just pure gems of yeah. uh, information. Uh, one second. Almost got it. Let's see how would it go, and I get like the sound of like papers flipping, <laughs> or the sound of a, a, a librarian. Okay, here we go. So uh, this is in uh, Lee Brackett's original. She was the first screenwriter that was working on Empire, but uh, uh, this is a handwritten note that Lawrence Kasdan put on her type script. So he just goes by Boba. They don't actually full up say Boba Fett. <laughs> okay. Uh, and right next to the name. Uh, Kasdan wrote in parentheses a very tough customer with an arrow pointing towards it. So that's just pre pre selling this whole badassness that never really substantiated. Right, <laughs> a very tough customer. That's awesome. Yep. yep. All right, Steve. So so let's explain what's going to happen here. Um, we are going to have a a normal episode. We are going to talk about. We're going to have all the normal sections, but we're going to do it in a different way. Yep. Um, now, don't fear for episode 35 with Bosk, my mortal enemy. Everything's going to go back to normal with just you and me and maybe a little bit polyvocal. Right. But just with this news, it just seemed to me that we should get as – not as many people as possible because there's lots of people I wanted to invite on. But it would just sure, be too sure. many people. You know, It would have been great to have Duncan on there. It would have been great to have Brock, You know, uh, some other people on here. Yeah. But what I thought was, well, why not just talk to some of like the oldest, schoolest collectors – that I know, 
um, and people who are really affiliated with the archive. Because yeah. the other thing is this news about about the the new movies. It's just completely energized the Star Wars fandom. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and that applies to podcasts too. Now, if you haven't tuned out already, which I, I imagine you might have when I started uh, saying that Steve wasn't cool, um, <laughs> you know, like like uh, for instance, a good example is uh, you know the Force Cast. Um, you know, like, I, I always listen to their roundtables for the Clone Wars, um, mm-hmm. but I'd say I listened to about one out of every four of their weekly episodes. Okay. You know, I've been listening every week ever since the announcements. It's so exciting, yeah. you know, and, like, I remember why I liked them so much in the first place. And, you know, same thing this week in Star Wars and Star Wars Action News. Like, I'm, like, listening to more than one podcast again, and it's yeah. just – it's really exciting. So I'm thinking there may be some people who are like, hey, w- what is the vintage reaction? So yeah. uh, I, I thought it'd be great to get sort of vintage luminaries uh, and yeah, uh, and I'd us. Say that's a good way to describe them. <laughs> <laughs> vintage luminaries and us uh, to talk about it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it, it'll, it'll be interesting, Steve, because I've never done a full roundtable before. Um, I actually did. I was inspired by this. Um, the Forcecast did a, a roundtable to their reaction. So okay. uh, I like to acknowledge when I copy their ideas. <laughs> um, and I'm going to try and copy the host because he does this cool thing where, like, he'll ask a question and he'll say the person's name right ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And, and it keeps it really mellow. So you may hear me do it and it'll sound kind of inauthentic, but that's just because, you know, I'm an amateur. <laughs> but without, yeah, without further ado, Steve, uh, we are going to hit the news, so to speak. And then we will have a discussion about Disney, about 7, 8, and 9. And then we're going to talk about Boba Fett, but just with this whole table of, of well-known collectors. You know, uh, Gus Lopez, Ron Salvatore, Chris Gullius, and Tommy Garvey. The Knights of the Vintage Collecting Roundtable. That's right. I still haven't come up with a better name. I was like, should we call it the Space Chess Table? <laughs> That's not funny. I, I thought, like, I wish there was a name of the table in, in, in Empire, you know. Oh, yeah. Where they were sitting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, and all of that. Uh, and next month, Steve, we'll have to talk about you going to, to Rancho Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah. And we'll have to talk about the first meeting of the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club. That's right. We'll have to talk about Angry Birds. Mm-hmm. But for now, let's talk about 7, 8, and 9. Watch out! It's Kenner's news. It's Kenner's news. It's Kenner's news. Here's the news. It's Kenner's news. News from Kenner. All right, Steve. So here we are with everybody, right? We got the whole crew. All right, and I think you and I are going to do the least talking if we play it off right. But I'm now going to. I'm going to do sort of like my official introduction. Uh, I'm going to try not to have it sound like I'm uh, introducing a basketball game. But let's see here. So, from Orlando, the keeper of the Hobby History Archive, the world's biggest Kia Mall fan, Disney and Zelda enthusiast, Tommy Garvey. How's it going, Tommy? Pretty good, Sky. How about you? Going great. And from North Carolina. You see, that's impossible. See, I just got to do the Jordan thing when I say from. I played too much Space Jam pinball. Okay. From North Carolina, the man who must be named. It's Chris Jorgulius. You, you there, Chris? <laughs> and from the shadows of West Point Academy, on the muddy banks of the Hudson River, the man whose archive write-ups set the standards for writing about toys with wit, clarity, and other stuff for the entire Internet. It's... Ron Salvatore. <laughs> uh, hey, Sky. 
Did I go too far on these, Steve? Uh, that's all right. Just let, let it roll. Yeah, you, you gave me 10 minutes in between the last part we recorded and this part, and I just sort of went off. And finally, broadcasting from the Boba Cabana, found high atop the tippy-tippy top of the Seattle Space Needle, Star Wars author, Star Wars Collector's Archive founder, and rancid serial donator, Gus Lopez. Gus! Hey, guys, Steve, how's it going? All right, it's going great. So we're here to talk about a couple things. First, we're going to talk about this crazy news. You know, when I, when I heard about Disney and I heard about 7, 8, and 9, I thought, you know, this needs more than just Steve and I sort of blabbing about it. Yep. We need to get, like, the voice of, you know, the, the vintage intelligentsia, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 can we move that into one word, Ron? You're pretty good with words. Is it intelligentsia? Yeah, you guys are intelligentsia, right? Okay. Okay. You say so. <laughs> and 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 because of that, I'd like to make the first decree. I don't know if you guys can agree with me on this. Well, it's my fa- it's okay. My second favorite April Fool's joke in the history of the hobby. Uh, Jeffrey Hunter, uh, who we all know is a great sense of humor, posted in April first, two thousand and five, that at Celebration Three, the post quills will be announced. And uh, I, I don't, what do you guys think? Is that, is that as funny as I think it is, Gus? You know, I, in, in hindsight, it's brilliant. You know, it's very funny to see it now. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I get a kick out of seeing it tonight. Like, I was like, wow, oh, yeah, I was really prophetic. Yeah. And, and Sophie I, doesn't announce, like, a sequel to the holiday special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, I love the idea that, you know, because there were sequels, right? I mean, a sequel was like Empire and Jedi. And that, you know, so these are the postquels. So, anyways, that's at least what I'm calling them. I don't know about you, Steve. Eh, I'll, I'll I'll stick with it for now, but I may have to change uh, as time moves on. I don't yeah. know. It'll be hard to fight calling them the sequels. But the yeah. main, main thing I want to get first of all is just, you know, you guys are some hardcore, long-time vintage collectors. You know, like, like what was your reaction? Like, Chris, what was your reaction when you first heard they were they were uh, making new movies? <laughs> I was pretty psyched. Yeah. <laughs> as you will, though. Not so much, like, from a fanboy movie standpoint, just from, like, breathing new life into everything because it seemed like you know star wars is kind of stagnating and that was a huge shot in the arm i think uh that that the hobby really needed and just um the sign of of things good things to come i think yeah and i mean i mean gus you're you're pretty like keyed into the whole lucasfilm structure at least i read your articles in star wars insider every month when i'm uh, at barnes and nobles hanging out with my daughter i mean how how does this feel sort of closer to the center of lucasfilm has this been just as exciting for you guys as well well i haven't i you know from i don't have tons of interaction with the folks there but it doesn't look like it's changed anything immediately as far as you know i think this is, you got a lot of the same people i think they're very pumped from the few i've talked to or, who are over there um, and, and I think most view it very positively. So, um, but, but, you know, I, I haven't, I, you know, I don't, I only do a couple projects with him, them here and there, but in general, I think people are pretty psyched about the news. I think it's a good thing. And, and I'm, I'm thinking too about, about Ron, who I, I often think about his, uh, he's written some of the best, most strident things against the prequels that I've written and that I've read in particular. <laughs> Dude, you, in 2005, you wrote a review of Revenge of the Sith on the forums, and just for some reason, you, you like, <laughs> you wrote out the whole thing, and you're saying how it's all going great, and then you, you said the whole movie just went sour when it when you saw Sayo Bibble for the first time. 
I just for I don't some... even remember that, but I'll take your word for it. I yeah. do love Sio Bibble. Sio Bibble, you pronounce his name. I don't. Tommy, do, Tommy, do, <laughs> I do, do loved, you have? I loved in uh, his review on Usenet where he's like talking about Rick Oley and the, the <laughs> pilot of the Naboo speeder or whatever the hell it is. And right. he's, like, he's comparing it to the movie Airplane as he's talking to Anakin in the Oh, yeah. Gladiator movie, the only guy on all of Naboo who realized that a communications disruption could mean an invasion. <laughs> That's true. Like, no if he wasn't there, they would have never even figured that out. <laughs> oh, it's outrageous, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, were, were you sort of like initially really excited or were you just kind of thinking sort of more of the same or what, what was your reaction? About on? the Disney thing? I yeah. I mean, my first reaction was kind of surprised, I guess, but then it seems like I've heard a couple of rumors that something like that might happen. Right. I can't remember where I heard it, so it wasn't that surprising. And I guess my general reaction was just to kind of it just seems kind of funny like that star wars would end up merging with disney and also kind of appropriate at the same time so it's like one of those surprises that after you think about it for it's like five minutes doesn't seem that surprising anymore right so i guess it just kind of was like yeah star wars and disney like that makes total sense so i mean as far as the movies go i mean i don't i mean i hope they make some good ones it's always fun to see new good movies i wasn't super happy about the Prequels. I mean, I'm not really a prequel hater. I just don't really pay that much attention to them these days. But if you know they make new ones, I'm sure I'll go see them. So I hope they're good. That, and I wonder too. And this is something that I saw um, Chris was writing a little bit about on the forums, and I think he was the first person to really bring this home. But I mean, how do we think this will really impact us as vintage collectors? Like Chris, what, what, what were you saying? Maybe kind of recap what you were saying about that as far as its effect on the on the vintage market, so to speak. I guess from, from my viewpoint, I was looking at it, you know, it's um, one thing that's good about Star Wars is it continually appeals to new generations of people, so it always keeps it in the, in the spotlight. Whereas, you know, you look at some old toy lines, you know, if you go like, like the old 60s G.I. Joes or Micronauts or something where there was like a snapshot in time where people played with things and those people – and, and, and that, that never transferred to a new generation of people. So now with Star Wars continuing to go, you know, I think that people, as far as vintage things go, I think people always, even as new people into the hobby, you know, they don't have to have a nostalgic attachment, I think, to collect things. The, the thing I often think about is like, maybe you guys have a thought on this. You know there's weird stores that exist that only sell, like, I love Lucy memorabilia and like Betty Boop, <laughs> right? I mean, you guys know those stores, right, right. Ron? You, like you, you know those stores, right? Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. who's buying yeah, that stuff? Yeah, they call them Disney stores, and they all went out of business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, there's a store by me that sold nothing but I love New York stuff. Oh, I love wow. Orlando. <laughs> Uh, but I'm like I'm thinking, you know, that Star Wars was in danger of kind of heading into that sort of what I call a Gone with the Wind territory, where like mm. people don't even remember what it was that they're so nostalgic about. But uh, and I mean, what, what do you think, Tommy? Do you think this helps specific characters more than others? I mean, how would you imagine this would work? I, mean, I guess it depends on who's going to be in the movies. But how do you see it playing out in the future as far as vintage collectibles? Well, that is one of the one of the main discussions is who's going to be in the movies. You know, the first six movies kind of follow Vader's story, right? And if if he's dead, what are they going to do now? 
But I, I do think it could help specific characters. I mean, especially um, R2 and 3PO. I mean, they've got to be in it. <laughs> right. What happens there in it? So uh, people who collect, like, those characters should should be excited about it. Right. Um, I think... I think people who are fans of the expanded universe should should be interested in it. Like whether or not they're going to, I I sincerely doubt they will do any movie based on strictly on a novel or video game or anything like that. But I would be very surprised if they didn't throw in characters or uh, environments from the expanded universe just as a a way to to bring uh, newer fans in. Right now, this is the big question for all of us, Ron. Uh, are you going to kill yep. Chewbacca again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always on the lookout to kill more Chewbaccas, so if I have more opportunities, you can be sure I'll be there. For those of you that, that don't know, Ron Salvatore happens to be the name of the author who killed Chewbacca uh, in the Expanded Universe, and I was like, you know what, just my luck, they're going to pick that. Although that that actually probably be good for him as, as far as a collectible goes. I mean, <laughs> what, what I fear is that they could actually almost hurt a character, you know, like if, if Leia came back and she was kind of lame, I don't, I don't know. It probably wouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. And also too, I was thinking, Gus, how do you think this will change celebrations? Do you think it'll make them different or how, how do you think that'll happen? Yeah, It's hard to say. I mean, what um, I've heard from people who kind of close to Disney is that Disney generally has been hands off with the companies they own. So my, if I were to just take a wild speculation on what will happen is that they'll remain hands off and celebrations will continue uh, every, you know, every year like they're planning. So uh, that would be my guess. I, I think it opens up more potential though. I would bet that other convention Disney's doing, if they start to include other characters from other licenses like Marvel and, and Star Wars and so on, that they'll, there'll be probably more options for conventions. But I, I, my guess, and this is really a guess, I have no information on this, is that it'll affect very little as celebration, at least in the short term. Right. Okay. So we'll still kind of be able to have crazy parties with manatees and stuff. It won't be. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember, Chris. Chris, you were saying something about it on the on the forums as well about it maybe, or actually, or was I saying it? Or maybe it was me. <laughs> I don't know. We were talking at least about it, sort of making them feel more relevant. Have you felt like they've been kind of, or have any of you felt that they've been kind of weird lately since uh, Celebration Five? Uh, I guess. Yeah. Know, I, I think that. Um, I think a very natural thing was happening over time that 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 celebration and Star Wars fandom in general was evolving into the diehards, which I think actually was a good thing. I mean, attendance has remained strong, you know, for the last couple of celebrations, even after the movie. So it actually is still strong interest, but I think it actually has a bigger concentration of diehards. Right. And I think what this does is this pulls Star Wars back into the mainstream, like. You know, uh, and, and, and you know, not just in Celebration, but in every other uh, type of Star Wars activity. Right. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I, I also wanted to ask a question about sort of more um, more like remember when. Um, do you guys have – I mean, okay, so Steve and Tommy were both born yep. in the late, late 90s, so they won't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, the prequels were announced, at least my, my memory – I'll go with my memory first – was watching Entertainment Tonight in probably 1993 or 1994 and them announcing that they, that George Lucas is going to start writing the prequels. And I was so excited 
that I like stayed up and I recorded it on a VHS tape in between Simpsons episodes. And I tried to find it. Maybe Tommy, you could help me. I tried to find it on the web, but you look up ET episode one and it's all pictures of ET in episode one. (laughs) 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 You you just can't find it. So I'm wondering like, you know, Ron, Chris, uh, and Gus, do you have any like fun? Where were you when you heard about the prequels? Uh, My memory of it was more about, I would have placed, placed it more about 95 when about those uh, VHS editions came out. That's when I thought they started really talking about the prequels. But anyway, whenever it first came out, my first thought was like, yeah, right, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> and I didn't really um, realize it was for real until I started seeing casting stuff. Remember, that was the early days of Ain't It Cool News and Harry Knowles when he was making a big impact. And he had like Ewan McGregor info and all that stuff that who was cast in the prequel. And that all of a sudden made it seem like it was actually going to happen. And I'm pretty sure that was around 97 or so, probably around the special editions. Right. And I don't know. I mean, it was pretty interesting that they were going to be releasing new movies. I was never that, like, I'm going to wait online for two months beforehand, but it was always (laughs) something you were looking forward to to see what they were going to do with all the new technology and you know, Lucas had come out and said it was all going to be super digital, like a lot of it was going to be animated, and it was going to be a whole new kind of filmmaking, and so there was that kind of excitement about it. Um, but collecting-wise, I mean, at that point in time, I would say the vintage hobby was like exploding uh, right around 94 to 97, Okay. with all those people coming into the 20s and 30s, like... That was even outside of the prequels. It was just like everything Star Wars seemed to be huge between the the re-release of the movies and the VHSs and like at shows, Star Wars was everywhere. So that seemed like a really heavy Star Wars interest time in general, even without the prequels. And the prequels were just something that was like on the horizon would be coming eventually in the future. Right. So, I mean, that was my main reaction was I was just kind of collecting and Star Wars seemed to be really popular and kind of hoping the movies would be good and seeing what would happen with the casting and everything. But right. I didn't have much thought beyond that. Now, is that, that your experience too, Chris, where you were just sort of just so busy collecting you didn't think that much about the movies? Or did you have, like, a same kind of feeling, like, oh, this is really going to help? Or what, what, what were you thinking? I mean, I guess, I guess the time, I wasn't really thinking about it helping or hurting. I guess it didn't, to me, it didn't have any effect on, on collecting, really. Right. And because I've never sort of been collecting because of movies, but um, I just remember, like, I don't know if it was as late as Ron was saying. It seemed like I was thinking more of the early 90s, you know, when, when the when the Zahn novels were coming out. There was murmurings that more Star Wars was, was on the horizon. It seemed like I read something in Parade magazine or something, where that's when. And I remember, or, you know, at, at the time, everybody's on the Usenet, you know, a lot of the discussions were going on, lots. And at that time, it was so early, you know, we were blending the, the collecting speak the movie speak and everything was sort of all going on in the same place and then it started to, to faction off after that you know where people were just interested in talking about films and other people were talking about something right and, and split up as more and more um that got bigger so seem at the time you know it was just like that, that things were happening like Ron was really exploding toy shows were great um the men behind the masks started taking off i think that was a really big deal at the time um they were doing those shows around the country and um i think that was a i think one of the first times i think i met ron the first time and a bunch i mean ron and about a dozen other people for the very first time face to face was in behind the mask and uh 
of Cincinnati in late 97. Right. And um, that was just a good reason for to, to keep things going, you know, and to, to, to boost and, and sort of like many conventions. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you had Celebration and then that took off. Right. So it's almost like the the energy because, I mean, what you were describing, the, the similar like how movie talk and toy talk were blending together. I mean, you look at the threads about the new movies and it's the first time I've seen that since, you know, 2005. I mean, people are just, you know, ranting about. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that thread's gotten pretty crazy, but you know, it's it's toy talk and it's movie talk all at the same time. But uh, what, what was your memory, Gus, of sort of of hearing it for the first? Well, first of all, where do you vote? Was it ninety three, ninety five, ninety four? The the well, internet is actually not that clear. They say like, yeah. yeah. I think that I, I yeah, my recollection somewhere to Chris is that I you know I think they had trickles of hints all along the way. I don't remember any specific moment when they you know like you know the the fan there was the Star Wars Insider and 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 it was you know kind of called the Lucasfilm fan club before that. They were already dropping hints in the early '90s. I think people saw the novels and the and the Dark Horse comics, you know, Dark Empire, and and I remember like circa '93 '94. You would talk to collectors then who said, I'm going to you know, stockpile, especially in 95 when Power of the Force 2 came out. That right. People were already talking prequels by then and that, that they were stockpiling things thinking that it would be a, you know, uh, a windfall once the prequels hit because Star Wars would be back in the mainstream. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I remember it earlier. For me, the big moment was really when the trailer hit because right. um, like, I remember vividly like we were – I was at work, you know, work downtown Seattle and – there was like a there were certain movie showings that were showing the trailer at the beginning and the end of the movie. So we like left the office, went a few blocks, this movie theater, bought tickets just to see the trailer, and then went back to work, came back in two hours to see the. We didn't, I forgot what movie it was, but it was some horrible. Meet movie. Joe Black was that what it was? <laughs> Meet Joe Black. That's right. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and we went to see it two times, and we're like, "Wow, that's an awesome trailer! I, I can't wait to see that movie." Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember the trailer hitting was this big, big buzz. Now, now how, how about this for trivia? Now, okay, that was the trailer before Meet Joe Black. But do you remember that Fox had three trailers that they played before every uh, showing of Episode One? It was this kind of like triple trailer yeah. in one. Do you yeah. remember the three movies? I think I know two out of the three of them. Anna and the King, Fight Club, and, and yep, and one other Titan um, AE. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember seeing that thinking that Fight Club movie looks dumb. But anyway, that, I had the same reaction. I thought Fight Club was going to be dumb. And it, was, it was a brilliant movie. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> uh, funny. Is it, isn't Titan AE like written by Joss Whedon though? So it's kind of funny oh, since now it? people are saying that he's gonna be uh, he's one of the contenders for directing the, the new one. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't know he wrote that. I just remember that was. I think he. I think he like script doctored it. I don't know that he wrote the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I think right. he did. Right. Well, well it this was definitely. Yeah. Go ahead, Tommy. It, it was definitely before '94, though, that people knew about Episode One because um, that would have been the first year I collected, and I can remember going to the first toy show, and that was the pitch from every dealer was when when the special editions come out, all, right. all these toys are going <laughs> to be worth so much money, and then in a few years after that, they got. You know, one, two, and three coming out. And then after that, we have seven, eight, and nine. <laughs> and so I actually went to the library and found the Zon books and assumed those were seven, eight, and nine. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like I, I got all the way through them before I realized. I was like, 
Why did I read these then? <laughs> I thought you meant Scott like the official announcement, like a press release that he had started writing. Like, well, no, that, that's I mean, there's the definitely thing. rumors. Like, I, I don't know when on. it was. Like, I remember that. I can't find the entertainment tonight. Yeah. I remember that was like. He, it was just an interview with him. It wasn't an interview. It was like him walking out of a restaurant. He's like, oh, I started writing the book. I started writing it. And I, I just mm. – it was so exciting for me because at that time all I did was play Mortal Kombat 3. I didn't think to really get into collecting <laughs> Star Wars. Um, but I am really good at Mortal yeah. Kombat 3. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just – I don't even know when the exact official date was. But it's just so funny how different it was that at that point even something as big as Star Wars – even as big of an announcement as that was, you know, you hear people saying that this is a bigger deal, which I don't know if it is. But what, what do you think? Do you, do you think it's a bigger deal, Steve? I think it, it could be in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it just depends on the new uh, person behind the, the wheel, I guess. I mean, you're so used to having George as the uh, the head man, so to speak, and <laughs> to actually man. see it in some other creative hands for once. I think it's, I mean, it's really been refreshing for me to just think about what could be, but... Uh, I'm just cautiously optimistic, I'd say. Right. But, um, it's funny. I, a trailer note. Um, I was trying to watch that episode one trailer. We our computer at home wasn't capable of even playing it, so I went to a. Remember the uh, what was it? It was some computer store, but I tried to load it on the uh, one of the public stations, and the only thing that would load was the audio. So my first <laughs> attempt trying to watch the episode one trailer was just the audio of the trailer, and that got me excited enough. I'm like. What? What right. is the deal? Just the, the, those little drums, throp doop, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like what? Oh man, it was it was actually really maddening. <laughs> but that, that's awesome. Well, hey Chris, I've got I've got really good news. I, because of this new exciting stuff, and this is for Steve too. But we have a new lightning round question. That I'm going to ask all of you based on seven, eight, nine. Are you ready? Uh oh. Okay. So this is for all of you, so you can think, but Chris has to answer. Chris, you have to answer first. What secondary or tertiary character do you most want to see in the postquels? Okay, I'll answer first. My answer is Lumpy. I would oh. love it if Lumpy was brought in. I, I see no reason they should not go to Chewbacca. Chewbacca doesn't have to be Peter Mayhew. They get some other tall dude. He's a tall character. He's like R2-D2 or C-3PO. You can just put him in, have it all be about the family. So that's my vote. Lumpy all the way. Chris, who do you want to see as far as secondary tertiary characters? Um, I think they need to bring back the Dianoga. All right. And, um, <laughs> something around him. All right. Maybe like he could join the Luke's Jedi Academy. All right. How, how about you, uh, Gus? Yeah, I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I actually, the I think it would be elegant if they tied the this trilogy to both of the previous trilogies so that they bring back surprise characters from the first trilogy that might have lived that you didn't like Mace Windu or something like that. And and I think that would be interesting. Like Mace Windu would probably be my pick as somebody that you right. know he quote unquote died, but did you really see him die? I mean you saw Anakin jumping on vehicles all over Coruscant so the dude could have landed on something and gotten out of there. But um but yeah, I mean I that's what I would find interesting if they tied it to the whole the whole saga, not just the last trilogy. Okay. Wouldn't do much for vintage collecting, but you're right. It would be oh. pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll, they'll, they'll do enough to tie it to the original trilogy. I don't th- I'm not, no worries about that. I'm sure all those characters will be back and probably get killed off in the first movie. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's just nice to tie it to the whole thing. All right. All right. How about you, Tommy? Kia Ma. 
Okay, <laughs> we all knew he was going <laughs> to say that. Sal Jobin. So I didn't even count as tertiary. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Quadiciary. <laughs> uh, so that that uh, see Steve, how about you? I think I'm going to go with nine. Um, I'd like to see some uh, further explanation <laughs> of his military career because you know, he was obviously on the rise by the, the end of the last pilot. movie. Yeah, you never know. You know, he could be an admiral by now. <laughs> he could <Yeah>. be. <laughs> he could be ten. No, you don't know. <laughs> Right. No, I think yeah. Ten Num exists though in in Hasbro world, right? That doesn't he, Gus? I, Which yeah. one? Uh, uh, maybe I don't. Yeah. know. I acknowledge no world outside of Vintage Kenner. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where it stops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a Ten Num in the white, the white suit. Actually, uh, the white. Well, that was actually the, the the precursor to the the Nine Num. I think that was the original design, and then they changed him to red, and then they. Went back to the old Lucasfilm photos and was like, hey, we can just create a new character here. So, wow, wow. modern super collector Chris Jorgulius. <laughs> and uh, how, how about you, Ron? What uh, secondary figure besides Sayo Bibble do you most want to see in, in, in the new I'm going to go with Captain Tanaka. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Because I want to hear him say the Hutt's a gangster's again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. So, what do you think, Chris? Is that, is that a good new lightning round question? Yeah, I hate the lightning round. I don't hate market watch. It's the lightning round, though. Okay. <laughs> I need to have an intro for that. Uh, all right. Cool. Well, then that's sort of like the first half of the news. And then the other part is kind of not just the, the post schools being made, but the fact that Disney bought Lucasfilm. And this is really where we where Tommy's going to get a chance to shine. So how – you know, because you're kind of like a, a – well, you're one of the few Disney fanatics that I know that does not possess ovaries. Um, so <laughs> that makes me feel good. Thanks for that. <laughs> I'm really sure of this. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, you, you never know. So, Tommy, how, how does this? I'm gonna as, put that on my business cards. <laughs> <laughs> so, how is this as a Disney fanatic? How are you receiving this? Not just from the the Star Wars side, but from the Disney side. In in what way? Like just among the, like among your fellow mouseheads, is this seen as like a a positive thing or like like maybe ambiguous because Star Wars is so powerful? You know, you're afraid of it, you well, know, running in and like taking out something awesome, like you know the the, the tiki room or something. The, the Disney fans, the Disney fans, uh, they they've been treating it with uh, much more restraint. They're, they're much less militantly angry than they were about the Marvel purchase. Because okay. there's been a, a long uh, relationship between Star Wars and Disney. I mean, it's been in Disneyland since, what, 86? It's right. been in um, Hollywood Studios since 89. So I, I, it's, it doesn't seem like a foreign concept like the Marvel deal does. Right. So they don't really have a problem with Star Wars coming into the parks or Disney controlling uh, Star Wars. So there isn't... There isn't a whole lot of problem there. A, a lot of people see it as something that Disney can invest their money in in order to uh, stop Universal's Harry Potter land, which is currently, you know, very popular. Right. Um, some critics point out that it's just Disney. Uh, another example of Disney going outside of itself rather than creating from within, like oh, Walt that's used interesting. to do. Like, we shouldn't be buying multi-billion dollar companies we should be creating our own multi-billion dollar companies huh yeah that, that's 
That's true, but you know, how, you're not going to do better than Star Wars, even if you do. No. Huh. So it seems like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, have you have you kind of found it maybe weird? I don't know, maybe Steve or anybody. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. The yeah. amount of like exuberance from the Star Wars. Do you think maybe there's a little bit of danger of us kind of going too far with our happiness? It's based on the, the last go around. I think there's some trepidation that should come along with it. But at the same time, um, I mean, I think as they've shown with the Marvel stuff, they, they seem to be treating these these extra properties with a different degree of care. And same with like Pixar and stuff like that. They they get the right kind of creative people involved with it, and you you feel better about it. Right. Um, it's, it's more of a, a multi pronged attack, I guess. Right. The the thing that I'm concerned about is what happens once Iger leaves. Like all yeah. the purchases, the the Marvel purchase, the Pixar purchase, and Lucasfilm are all under Iger, but he's right. out in like 18 months. Mm. Huh. So I don't know what the next administration is going to do because Eisner would not be having a hands-off policy with right. these companies. Yeah. Mm. So I I haven't seen the contracts, but I, I would hope that they put something in there in writing. That they have some sort of um, self management. So I, I, I is the CEO of Disney, just to be clear, right? Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're not all like you know, studio inside was like you and Steve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was pronounced Igor. That's just me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Without ovaries. Now, um, as far as uh, some other talk, Gus, that's been happening, there was a rumor that. Disney was going to buy Hasbro, and it seems like that was kind of fake. But, like, what if, because of this deal, you know, Disney has deals with Mattel and all that? I mean, do you think there's any chance that Kenner is going to have no part of Star Wars as far as action figures go? Well, what I, I don't know the details of their contract, but as I understand, Hasbro has a contract out several years, so that at least for some time, whatever happens, they're going to still be doing Star Wars toys. Um you know, the, the other thing is I understood that part of um, one of the deals, I don't know if it was special edition or prequels, that uh, Lucasfilm got some Hasbro stock, like owned some portion of Hasbro. So huh. I don't know if that changes the equation a bit. If, you know, if, if already basically does Disney own a piece of Hasbro? I don't know the answer to that, but I wonder, you know, in those previous deals, uh, Lucasfilm, I had heard, had gotten some stake in Hasbro. So I don't know if that factors in. But I haven't heard anything concrete on this, whether, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, uh, overnight all of um, Disney's holdings switch over to, like, say, Mattel. Um, uh, I imagine over time, as contracts expire, it becomes, you know, tempting to do a big contract for all their licenses. But I think it takes some time to sort that out. I mean, look at it today just with Marvel, right? There's other studios that own the rights to some of these films for for quite a long time and so right. so you know, I think it takes a while to, to prune all that and get get you know renegotiate contracts right yeah I just I, I think for the vintage hobby obviously new movies is better but having that Kenner logo and having them just go back to that Kenner well oh, yeah. I think it's a good thing right oh yeah I, I think it'd be great for nostalgia's sake to keep it consistent but I think people are already going to have to deal with there won't be a 20th century Fox logo at the beginning so. yeah yeah, yeah I, right. I, I wanted to talk about that because actually my, my son I'll put up a show link when I told him first of all the absolute best part of this whole thing is if you have kids you get to tell them that there's going to be a Star Wars movie and then they go really that's awesome and then you get to tell them yeah it'll be in three years what oh, <laughs> but, the drop on a kid <laughs> yeah it's great oh my son but I, he drew this picture and he drew a beautiful rendition of the 20th Century Fox logo. That was oh, the first man. thing he did. He wrote, you know, introducing episodes 7, 8, and 9. 
And then I was like, yeah, but they were bought by Disney. And so he, he just wrote on the 20th Century Fox and Disney. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. So it's so funny that even my seven-year-old associates Star Wars so firmly with that. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, do, do you think that we're going to be able to get over this, Ron? I mean, do you have that affiliation with the, the 20th Century Fox logo? Um, it is weird, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it'll be odd to hear to see Star Wars movie not have that 20th Century Fox fanfare beforehand. It almost feels like it's part of the score written by Sean Williams. I mean, right. yeah. I don't think a company fanfare has ever been so associated with a single movie, even where it seems to lead into the actual score. Um, but, you know, people get over it. I mean, well, they're going to have to, I guess. I don't know right. if it's going to really affect anything, but it is certainly something funny to think about. Yeah, I don't know. Have any of you ever had that experience when you were a kid of other movies by 20th Century Fox? Oh, absolutely, and you got all yeah. psyched, and then it was like, wait, th- what? Tim's like a pyramid. Right? You're <laughs> yeah. like, uh, <laughs> left in the lurch there. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I mean, fortunately for those of us that, that are uh, crazy Lucas apologists, we've already went through this with the Clone Wars movie because that was Warner Brothers. So you at least got the Lucasfilm logo after a Warner's Brother logo, which I preconditioned. Yeah, there's advantages to being a uh, a fanboy through and through. That's the other question, right? There's thoughts that they may be making movies that are not in the trilogy. They would be outside movies. Yeah, yeah. Which I think. I'm wondering if they'll use the live action TV show that they were been planning for years as some sort of um, plot for one of those type of movies, you know, not seven, eight, nine, but just set in the star Wars universe. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I think those, the idea of even just one shot movies, I think inevitably those will wind up being people's favorites because they'll be like different, you know? So I could see them making a movie that's, Oh, I don't know about a young Wookiee and his family and trying to figure out how to probably release something every year, Scott. I mean, yeah, doesn't stopping them <laughs> for at least some kind of thing every year. I mean, they'll certainly make money doing it. So, but want to see it, why not? Yeah, they do. I like the idea of like mixing up genres, maybe, because the Star Wars universe has so many different stories you could tell. You could do like a a noir type of thing. You could do straight action. You could do do high drama. It'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's another thing, too, that uh, I know Ron wanted to talk about. It's something I've been thinking about a lot, too. You sort of wanted to talk about the death of Lucas, right? So what what did you mean by that, Ron? much the death. I mean, it's just an interesting... I mean, Lucasfilm was kind of like the dream come true for 70s filmmakers, you know, like these guys who came up out of film school and wanted to uh, get um, independent of Hollywood and kind of have their own money to make their own things and go off away from Hollywood and Northern California with Zoetrope and Francis Ford Coppola and they'd make art movies and stuff and, and it was a nice little idea, I guess, and, you know, they tried it and the kind of stuff that they, you know, one from the heart from Coppola and, and Tucker and, and some other movies like that never quite made what they wanted to do. But that was kind of like the dream come true, and Lucas was the one guy to really do that. And he kind of built that little empire up there. really became the most successful independent filmmaker of all time, I guess. And, yeah, but... you know, you have to have a huge amount of respect for what he did. I mean, what, who, who else has a, a series like Star Wars under their belt, as well as all the technological innovations and stuff? So he's had a huge impact but then you also kind of wonder about the young man george lucas and, and what he originally wanted to do and think like oh, i wonder if he had it if there's ever a regret like how he became kind of stuck with star wars like did he always want to just make star wars movies did, did he ever want to get away certainly 
throughout his career, he kept saying he wanted to get away and do other stuff, and it never quite worked out. So it's kind of like this Faustian thing almost of this guy trying to make his way in filmmaking and gets more successful than he could ever imagine, and then kind of just does Star Wars, you know, right. which certainly isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's a, quite a success, but it, it's kind of interesting to see Lucasfilm now all of a sudden bought up by Disney and kind of realize, wow, that whole 70s thing kind of ended up in a place that no one ever kind of thought it would go there. It's just kind of, I guess, a lesson in you know, your life really doesn't always end up like how you think it will, you know, and even right. if you're a huge success, it's like you maybe find yourself standing somewhere where you didn't think you would. Right. Um, that's kind of the interesting thing to me, and certainly not in a bad way. I mean, I mean, I think anyone would have a hard time really criticizing Lucas for what he ended up doing. Right. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about. And then the fact that he gave the money, or he says he's going to give all the money to charity, in some ways kind of brings it back to that sort of 60s, 70s, Northern California ideal. Like, it's not about your money, man. It's all about the vision, yeah. you know? It's just really weird. Yeah, like these kind of like hippie sort of guys, and then it ends up this Star Wars, which kind of ends up being this big commercial thing, you know? And then it's Disney. Right. <laughs> it's up in Disney. It's like, whoa, how did that happen? It's just, just really funny to kind of think about where things lead you over time. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I... It was at Celebration 3, I think. I was watching someone talk about the original Star Wars font, you know, and Lucas specifically told him, make the S as fascist as possible. Like, his goal in making Star Wars logo was to make a fascist logo. And then it became a story of rebellion, and then it became, like, his symbol. And so, you know, it was almost like someone, like, designed a swastika and was like, yeah, okay. And then that's just sort of wound up in everyone's shoes and curtains and stuff. And Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's... Well, I think it's kind of stupid when people really try to lay all this blame on Lucas for, you know, doing what he did, you know, making a lot of money and kind of inventing the blockbuster and all that stuff. It's kind of a dopey way to look at, I think, movie history. But, right. I mean, it is kind of funny when you see him when he's a young guy and he's talking about making these art movies all shaggy and stuff. And then he, he ends up <laughs> as, like, this big mogul in charge of Star Wars, which is this big toy and merchandising empire. And then it ends up being bought by Disney. It's, like, just kind of, like, leaves you scratching your head, like... Wow, I want, how did that happen? You know, and I wonder if Lucas kind of wonders that himself. You know, you think he probably does. He probably doesn't care at this point. You know, he's a right. huge success, but why would he sit there and worry about it? But well, I, it is I, kind I, of a funny story. Yeah, I remember. I think some interview, right, Gus, where he called himself Darth Vader. Do you remember reading that? Yeah, yeah, I've read a couple things where he did, made some analogies to yeah to uh, the characters. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that arc. Uh, you know that that yeah, he's come. He's kind of was the the independent filmmaker and just, you know, became this, despite hating Hollywood and the studio system, he, be, he, be, he just created a new one. But right. I mean, it was, you know, but it, again, it was under the one thing I'll give him. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of things I give him, but I, the one thing I, that's unique about him is that, um, that it was under artistic control, right? The other studios are all much more corporate driven and decision-making. Whereas, he he would just do things for passion of from the way they designed the Lucas buildings to you know to movies he decided to do. I mean, some of it I'm sure was driven by business, but but um, but he you know he always prided himself as not really being a businessman, and so that that is one difference. I think the selling to Disney will change is I think, but that could be a good thing. I think having really good business oversight and all that could make Star Wars even better. Right, because eventually you do want to sort of give the fans what they want a little bit more than he has. I mean, I'm the world's I did, I did biggest. Notice, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I did notice, Guy, that he did 
do the Red Tails movie, which was something he was talking about doing for years as like right, a personal right. project, you know, yeah. before he got out, which is kind of an interesting thing. And I'd be curious to wonder what his whole thoughts on that is. He seemed kind of bitter about it, that yeah. he kind of blamed kind of some racial things about its non-success, I guess. But he kind of finally got that off the ground, and it didn't do that well, and then he was out. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it's, it is kind of like – there is kind of the thing where you wonder, like, he seemed to always wanting to wanted to do something else, you know, whether it was his art films he was talking about or his like his uh, black uh, African American uh, World War II pilot movie, which he finally did eventually. But it was always seemed like he wanted to do more, and then it just didn't happen, you know. Yeah. And it was always just ended up being Star Wars, which is certainly not a bad thing because Star Wars. Who would want? Who would not want to be associated with Star Wars? But you do wonder, like, underneath if there wasn't something else he was hoping to accomplish there. But I guess now he's retired, so who knows? Yeah. Well, that that happens with writers sometimes. I think uh, Arthur Conan Doyle hated Sherlock Holmes. He wanted to kill him <laughs> off. But right. uh, people kept clamoring for more. No, Sherlock Holmes yeah. has to come back. But he hated his guts. He did kill him. Uh, Rickenbacker yeah. Falls, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and and now Lucas, and that's that's maybe the other great thing is Lucas could have almost killed Star Wars. Like I, I honestly thought he was going to end it where he was going to sign his will and he's going to create an ironclad thing where no one could ever make a Star Wars movie, even if it was his kids, and then that would be it, and it'd be like you know lawyers paid in perpetuity, and then that would be it. Um, <laughs> Chris, Gus, and I actually talked about this when we were out at Steve Sansweet's last year. I remember someone saying Gus mentioning. Oh, yeah, he's, there's definitely going to be more movies because there's going to be so much money once he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> His kids are going to make them, and that's a good point. You know, I mean, obviously someone's going to make Star Wars movies, and there's too much money on the table. Well, well I really like Bond, you know, Bond yeah. with the whole legacy of that. That just seems to be never-ending, and, uh, yeah, that's... But, yeah, I remember just, I remember one time uh, around, I think it was when Episode 3 came out, it was at, I was at a, met a Lucasfilm guy who was talking to, and I, I, I was just doing the math in my head and going... It's impossible to me, like a business impossibility that they wouldn't make more movies. And he was, you know, and he had, uh, this guy, I didn't know very well, but he had, he had drank the Kool-Aid and said, no, Lucas is done. Episode three is it. He really is, you know, there's other things fans can do, but it won't be movies. I go, no, I, I just don't believe that. I believe he believes that now. I just believe <laughs> you have billions of dollars and potential money yeah. to pay off merchandising and films. It becomes impossible to turn that down. <laughs> right. Yeah, now, a billion do, dollars is a billion dollars. Yeah. Do, do, do any of you have any memories uh, as being a kid and knowing what Episode 7 is going to be about? I'll start while you can think about it. I was told at Burbank Elementary School, right next to the Jungle Gym, I can tell you exactly where I was, that Episode 7 was all about Han Solo being trained how to be a Jedi. And <laughs> I was so psyched, and I was as certain as anything that movie was coming out in 1985. <laughs> uh, do you have any memories of, of uh, kind of like school ground uh, certainties like that? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, as a school kid, I was the only one that really knew what Star Wars was until right. the special distance came out. So I was kind of stuck in the, the no man's land as far as new movies. I thought that was it. Um, right, yeah, because they were all like high school musical, woo, right? Like, <laughs> uh, not quite. It was more more the uh, Power Rangers, you know. Right. That, that was the... <laughs> Uh, cool. Um, well, then, I, I think, you know, Gus Actually, mentioned... Actually, Disney oh, owned the Power Rangers, too, until a few years ago. They sold really? them uh, back to uh, the original the ori Bandai? original creators. Huh. But they owned the Power Rangers for years and years and years. They just didn't do anything with them. Right. Huh. Huh. So, Go ahead. I remember uh, in 77 telling friends 
when Star Wars came out, and at the time we thought it was going to be 12 films, I said, I said to my friends, wouldn't it be funny if you go through all these movies and in the 12th one you find out Darth Vader was really Luke's father? <laughs> and <laughs> when we went to all see Empire, they were all like, how the hell did you know? I said, I don't know. I was just like, <laughs> uh, That's awesome. Well, a little bit earlier, Gus, you were talking about creative control. And I think the big talk now, you know, if you listen to the other Star Wars podcasts, everyone's talking about directors and who's going to direct it. You know, they have the writer. It's going to be the... I didn't like Toy Story 3 or Little Miss Sunshine, so I'm a little bit bummed about that. But that's you no didn't like thing. Toy Story 3? How could you not like Toy Dude, Story 3? Dude, I'm hanging up on you. <laughs> it was Bob lame. Maudlin. Yeah, that's too much. Like, all right, I get it. They're going to die. Jesus Christ. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was okay, but I mean, like, compared to Toy Story 1 and Toy Story 2, which are nearly flawless movies, I thought Toy Story 3 was just like, everyone wanted to love it so much because they love trilogies, but, I mean, how, like, Nine-tenths of that movie is like a knife at Woody's throat slitting across so that the blood just seeps out, but it doesn't hit the corroded artery. And, like, you're just sitting there like, is he going to bleed to death or not? And just to me, that's not drama. That's not interesting. But I digress. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you there, Tommy? I'm still seething. I I know. (laughs) It's not a coincidence, Tommy, that none of the Toy Story 3 stuff made it into the Toy Story Mania ride. At Disney World. Case closed. You want to bet? I'll bet you $100 million. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gone? He has almost enough money to buy Lucasfilm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you really want to argue with me about Disney rides? I can tell you the exact games that the Toy Story elements are in on the Toy Story Mini <laughs> ride. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I'm right, Tommy. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, so... <laughs> want me to send you a video? No, I'm just... I'll no. bet you a Chewbacca focus. Tommy, Tommy, we're going to agree to disagree, okay? <laughs> I'm probably right. I, I accept... I'll look it up right now. I totally believe that that's what you believe, Tommy, but I'm pretty much the Disney expert, so... I, no, of <laughs> Anyways, Toy Story 3 is an okay movie. It's just not a good movie. But my, my point is, is like, how do you think they're going to go with the directing? You know, like, I guess, you know, we haven't heard from Chris in a while. There's the sort of, I think, the three different ways of ta- of thinking about it. Either they're going to go with, you know, super known, like Spielberg or Peter Jackson or something. And then there's, like, the fanboy wet dreams of Joss Whedon and uh, uh, Christopher Nolan. And then there's sort of, like, the unknown. Which way do you think they're going to go, Chris? I really don't care who they go with. I think that there's enough push that people... That these films, I, I just think they're going to do well. I think they're, they're not going to. I think, you know, people were complaining a lot about the prequels where, where Lucas, you know, almost sold control over everything, you know, and things got through that maybe shouldn't have. And I think you'll probably have it so you get a well balanced group of people who know what it's going to take to make a good film. And I don't know that the director is going to make that much difference. I mean, I, I don't. It's better that. To, to, to know, like, that Hamill and Keith Fisher were approached by Lucas and then Harrison Ford's interested in, I think, tying those guys in to whatever you have is going to surpass almost like the writing and the directing. I think that, that blending the, the original trilogy and this post-wolves, what are you calling them, <laughs> like a nighttime sleep aid, but... Um, <laughs> I think something like just just the characters' involvement there would surpass any 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 input that that that, that one director is going to have over the other. I'm not going to hire 
you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's not going to be shoddy by any stretch, but I don't right. know that that's going to make that much difference. But of, of all of us, Ron, I would defer to whatever Ron thinks. He's right. a movie expert. So. <laughs> Me? Um, I mean, I think um, I think Chris is right. I think um, it doesn't really matter. They're going to be successful, but right. But I mean, I mean as far as like was, making them good, right? Which we're still hoping, right? I mean, yeah. I'll throw out a wild card. I thought Kenneth Branagh did an awesome job with Thor. I thought that was one of the more fun Marvel movies. It had like a crazy Wagnerian quality about it. Yeah, and, uh, I think he did well with the drama parts of it as well. And I think. He would not be a bad Star Wars director if he got a good screenplay. As um, long as he's not in it, right? Because, like, that Frankenstein movie yeah, was not Yeah, I don't mean acting in it, but <laughs> I thought he did a really good job with Thor. Thor was kind of fun and weird. Yeah, no, no. I thought, yeah. I, and, uh, I, I like that I think that Josh idea. Whedon is more of a sitcom director. I, I like him. I, I like the Avengers, but, I mean, most of it works on the dialogue and the guys arguing about stuff, and I don't know... Unless you have a big ensemble, if that's going to work for a Star Wars movie. But maybe they'll have a lot of Jedis sitting around arguing and stuff, like <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer and it'll work out. <laughs> right. Yeah, like Guillermo del Toro would be, a good, would be a good guy to try to tap, you know, since, especially since he didn't do The Hobbit. Like, he's got an interesting quality to his movies, I think. Yeah, I just I, – I worry about the Joss Whedon and the J.J. Abrams and all – just like – Something about it, like, what I worry about is that now that Lucas doesn't have complete control, that nerd culture will just take over and try and make it the Dark Knight. And, like, the Dark Knight's... Isn't Kathleen Kennedy in charge of the... Yeah, yeah. She's pretty pretty sharp, I think. I mean, I think they'll get... They'll really find someone who's good to go. I mean, I guess Joe Johnston is an obvious choice, but I, I don't know. I mean, he's certainly... Okay, I mean, an effect, a good effects guy, but his movies always just seem kind of flat and workmanlike to me. Like, I didn't love Captain America as much as I liked Avengers or Thor, so I mean, I don't know, but, but he but, seems but like it would be a natural pick considering Joe his connection Johnson. to the series. But just, Especially after the Co- Kobe and the Star Hunters episode of Droids, that was. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing about Joe Johnson did too, I mean, I don't, have you guys seen Jurassic Park 3 recently? Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, you have to watch that movie recently. again through like the spectrum of it being the most, the highest grossing, like queer studies movie ever. It's like <laughs> it is a completely, no, it's what? unbelievable. It is a treatise on homosexuality, and I don't mean that in a joking <laughs> way. Watch, watch Jurassic Park three again. I swear to God, the whole thing is about how Samuel's character. You're not confusing with Top Gun or something. No, no, no. It's not like that. It's not like snarky. It's like it's really about Sam Neill just being kind of an old, you know. Just watch it again. It just. Do you know it's about gladiators, uh, Rick Oli? Anyways, uh, Steve, am I gonna have to edit that out? Uh, no, I think you should leave it in. I think you should leave it in. I mean, oh, Joe Johnston is the kind of guy. <laughs> I, I think Johnston makes, like, good. Like, I think you give him a screenplay and he makes a screenplay. And, like, he, he does a decent job and it comes out all right. But he just kind of. There's something not there about him as a movie maker. Just flat and kind of. Well, he just, he's always trying to be Spielberg. Kind of dull. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> to be but, fair, I've I mean, heard that. I've heard that Jurassic Park 3 script was basically written on set, like, the day of. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I – just watch it again. Look at it through that way as being, like, kind of like a treatise about, about you know, a really heavily – like, all – anyways, just, just watch it. What do the it. dinosaurs represent, then? Like, society? 
No, I don't like, think. I don't like even think it's. I don't think it's an allegory. To it's just accept their love. It's if you watch the movie. That's Sam, a really Sam, cool metaphor, dude. I'm gonna go watch that right now. <laughs> Good. We'll, we'll see it. We'll start a whole other podcast. This guy gets attacked by Glad podcast. Um, but I don't mean it like in a, in a like a derogatory way. It's just it's very kind of. Anyways, just watch it again. There's certain scenes like the way they film men and anyways but look, i wanted to this is you see steve this is my problem i was all psyched because this was going to be the beautiful segue to part it two was, yeah. of our mega cast but i blew it by talking about sam neill being a gay paleontologist <sighs> steve how's that going to make this segue back on track here. how's that going to make this segue steve can you help me i think it's possible though if they do go the scattershot route with star wars and they just start making like a movie every year like whether it's part of the the a big series or just like a one-off thing like that would be an interesting uh forum for you know young filmmakers or to try out different filmmakers in different roles to give them a star wars movie and, and see where it goes i mean that would be quite an interesting platform for i think fantasy and action directors to, to go with because i mean almost anything star wars is going to make money so they might as well just keep cranking them out right. as long as they don't dilute everything too much but and, I think they can go with a number of different avenues with that. I think you're right. And let's not forget that the benchmark here isn't George Lucas. The benchmark is Richard Marquand and Irvin Kirshner. Now, RoboCop 2 is a fine movie, but like <laughs> those aren't exactly <laughs> titans of world cinema, even though those two I love movies, Irvin Kirshner. Yeah, but he's not a titan of world cinema, right? Or do you think he is? Well, well maybe not a titan, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, okay, see, well, you were supposed to save me. How am I going to make the segue? Because right. the whole idea was here we have the vintage intelligentsia, the vintelligentsia, and I thought, why not have our usual features with these guys on the line? You know, super polyvocal. How could we possibly talk about Boba Fett segueing out of Joe Johnston? Well, he was the uh, one of the designers for that that look, so. I mean, so is, is that go. is that is that true? Yeah, true. That, that's Chris? all we had to say. Did did, did he design? <laughs> did he design uh, Boba Fett? Yeah, I mean I he, he did. Yeah, right. Did, like those early sketches are all Johnson sketches, yeah. and there's uh, one way you can segue. There's uh, there's that Kenner sketch. It's on the archive of the twelve inch figure that uh, was based on the Joe Johnson sketch. Um, uh, but the Kenner was starting to design the Joe Johnson white suited Boba Fett initially. Right. You see, that there was the segue right there, Steve. There it is. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> it works out well. So I think that's what we're going to do. We're going to sort of rely on all of your expertise here and just try to, like, go through and talk about Boba Fett. Steve and I were joking that Boba Fett always gets the coolest everything, and here it is, his month, and he gets the announcement of 7, 8, and 9. It's, uh, it, it's unreal. Um, but I was thinking, why not do – like a vintage vocab, Steve. So should I, should I put in the drop right now for that? We let them folks change our vocabulary. Change our vocabulary. It's vintage. All right, Steve, we're back. Vintage vocab. So why not go to the rocket fet, right? I mean, we, we got the, the big hitters here. We're not going to talk about, you know, painted, pale, palatoy, knee, you know. I don't even know what that means, Steve. Do you know what that means? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. It means something, and we just alienated all of our European listeners. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, at least we'll be talking about cricket again soon. But I'm trying to think, 
First of all, the absolute easiest question in the world, and I'm going to address this to Tommy, the, the history of the, the, the keeper of the hobby uh, holocron, the nerdiest thing that's been said on an already nerdy show. What is a rocket fet, Tommy? I don't know, Sky. That's why I listen to your show. <laughs> what is a rocket fet? <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. I want to say the first person I ever heard use that term, I think, was probably Gus. I used it a lot, but I don't think I was the first. Huh, that's so funny that you know we take it so for granted the term rocket fat that we just think it's always been there, but it's true. We could I remember Gus telling me he wanted to have a vanity plate <laughs> rocket fat, but it didn't fit on. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, taken. Oh, uh, that's so funny. So, Tommy, you're not going to tell the absolutely new listener who's just listening to the show because they want to hear more people talking about the postquels. You're not going to tell them what a rocket fat is. They're on their own. <laughs> All right, Steve. Would it's you a, like it's, to? A, it's a Boba Fett action figure. That they advertised it as having a rocket feature, but when you received your Fett figure in the mail, the it came with a little note saying that there was a choking hazard and that they wouldn't let you. They wouldn't. It didn't have that feature anymore. Right now, the Rocket Fett were are. Uh, internal samples and prototypes uh, that still have that feature. Now, the the big question I've had is, I know Chris and Gus and Ron, you've all fired rocket fets before, right? Yep. Right. Have, have you yeah. have you tried to choke yeah. yourself with them? <laughs> is it possible? If it possible. were possible, do you think they'd be talking to you now, or <laughs> would they true. be dead? That would be the best death ever. Oh, my God. Can you believe it? Just found in your apartment, you know, your rancid corpse with like a $4,000 rocket stuck yeah. in your throat. But what a way to die. Yeah. <laughs> Legendary. He did it. Someone finally died because of the rocket fight. I yeah. actually looked up uh, uh, the case, uh, the Battlestar Galactica lawsuit, which uh, prompted it, but but I couldn't, I couldn't find it. So whatever... Wherever uh, it was tried, they didn't appeal, so there's no... Uh... There's something on the archive. You know about that, right? Yeah, the newspaper articles? Yeah. So, yeah. I remember when I, I posted looking... that years ago. I, I, got I, was looking for the, I was looking for the actual legal case, though, on, uh, on oh. Westlaw, but they only do uh, cases that have some precedent, so I don't think mm. it was ever appealed. It was probably settled. When I posted that years ago, I got some nasty email about how I was a callous individual because I was making entertainment out of some kid's death or something. I felt like a horrible person. <laughs> Did you take it down? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's there. It's there. There's a thing like it's like the death certificate. And the funny thing, well, not funny, but the interesting thing is they wrote that he took on a Star Wars toy. Yeah, exactly. No, really? Clearly I think it says Star Wars. But actually, it says Star Wars toy, or Star Wars, <laughs> you know, just because just it was, you know, the layman just putting in, writing that in there, but that was that was interesting. I think but I found you know, that. The size of the missile was, yeah. I think I found that on the yeah. Battlestar Galactica site or something. Like, it's, there, was, there was something, someone sent it to me, and I think it was on a Battlestar Galactica site. And I was like, holy crap, I can't believe it. Wow, that's crazy. I, I didn't know they called it a yeah. Star Wars toy right there. It's, yeah, the... it's on the archives. Wow. Well, at least they didn't... Yeah, that's... Somewhere in there. That's somewhere. So then then a more precise yeah, question. I think it started with that. Yes, Chris? 
I was going to say Sky Sardi was, you know, because the, the Battlestar Galactica had the little missiles that, that were in the Colonial Viper and in the um, Cylon Raider toy. They're about the size of the rocket fed missile as it was designed, which is the size of the, you know, the missile that they eventually glued into the backpack. But, you know, I think that was the first thing, because that definitely fits within the little choke hazard um, testing um, um a gizmo that they use to determine, you know, what what they can, what what determines a choke hazard or not. It's like this little tube that's like an inch diameter. Okay. But then beyond that, the Kenner people had a problem with the mechanism itself. Once they went from the L slot, they turned it to the J slot. I guess we'll get into that later too. But actually, it was, well, well, why, why don't you do that now? The mechanism tell us itself is breaking off. I see. Why don't you tell us what an L slot is and a J tell slot you now is? Now, what a J slot is. Okay, so that's collector speak. Actually, rocket fits collector speak. You know, originally we, we people referred to it as the missile firing Boba Fett. And after you write that so many times and you're using that posting, for a while people just started to say rocket fit, and that's where rocket fit um, came from. And then beyond that, you know, we were you needed a way to describe um, once there it was known that there was two different shapes of the the slot in the backpack that actually controlled the little slide that moved. That, that shot the rocket out of the pack. So there was like the L slot, which is a backwards L shaped cut in the backpack, and then it turned. The next version was the J slot, where it was a J shape, and that was to, to keep you from accidentally just knocking the, 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 the firing mechanisms over. You'd have to like physically pull it down to, to, to loop it around this little protrusion in the backpack, and then you could fire it. And it was that little protrusion that was breaking off in their safety test, and that was creating a sharp hazard. I mean, when you broke off a little sliver of plastic, it would turn into uh, like a, almost like a little piece of glass that you could cut yourself. Now, that that oh, was the final okay. blow for why they decided to kill the, the rocket firing feature. Okay, so the, the L-slot happened first. It wasn't actually... And that was too easy yeah, to do. Yeah, the happened first, and then J-slot. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think if the J hadn't broken off, if that little bit hadn't broken off, it probably would have been okay. From from, from what we were told, I talked to a few different people um, about it. You know, we'd go to Cincinnati, and I was always like, hey, what do you know about this? And that was the story. It was like, it was fine except for that little piece breaking off. Right. And then as far as the difference between the, the J slots and the L slots, I don't know, Gus, you, you, you probably know as well as anyone else does. So then... I, uh, is one of them considered to be more rare or more valuable, more interesting than the other? Well, you know, it, it, it's a bit subjective. So, uh, you know, the some like the J-slot better because it's closer to the kind of final um, production figure. And they they generally have been a bit tougher. I mean, they're both tough to find, but the J-slot ones have been, you know, tougher to find. But I don't know. I think there's more demand for the L slot in general. Like I think people like that original design. It, um, it, it, you know, um, so it's hard to say. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the price on those things have fluctuated a lot over the years. Actually, um, they were getting, you know, they're going for a lot, and you know, and but I don't. I, th I think there, you know, it de depends. There's some collectors who just will take any form. Some are looking specifically for L or J. Um, J I think is rare, but L I think has slightly more demand. Is my opinion. Okay, that 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 sounds uh, like you've thought about it. <laughs> That's like a pretty good answer. <laughs> and and uh, you know because um, Ron, I mean, because Chris was talking about kind of meeting some of the uh, the collectors and stuff. I thought, what do you think, Steve? Should we maybe try and see if we can get a story time out yeah, of these I think guys? 
get at least a, at least one, maybe a few. All right, cool. All right. So. Here's an oldie but goodie. Once upon a time, long ago. Tikalo Carbon. Tikalo Carbon Story Time. Hit it! Hit it! Toronto, gosh. All right. So, uh. So, Steve, we're back here in story time. I just played my little uh, Slick Rick drop there. I'm still, yep. still proud of that one. Um, and basically, you know, I've, I've been able to, to have conversations with these guys over the years, and they've told me these stories about these fines in Cincinnati and tra- being world travelers. Well, I guess Ohio travelers, but then world travelers <laughs> too. And just sort of finding all these amazing uh, toys that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars now. And we've never really had a chance to talk about them beyond the Virginia Jarvis Brooks game. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and so let's let's talk to to Ron see if he has any interesting stories about. Let's just take rocket firing fets as an example. Do, do you have anything to tell us, Ron? Um, I got two short ones that you can take or leave. Uh, we'll take. Um, the first one is um, I think Gus, Chris, myself, Todd Chamberlain, and, and maybe one or two other people went out to Cincinnati, probably in the geez late 90s, and uh, one of the things we bought on the trip was from a guy who had worked in the model shop. He had a bunch of slides from um, Toy Fair. Okay. And so, obviously, just normal, traditional slides. So you can't really tell what's on them, just sitting there in your hotel room or whatever, but we got tons of them, and it's like, oh, these are all the original Toy Fair displays. Um, so uh, John Wooten lived, he still lives out there in, in, in Ohio, and he had met up with us, and so we sent him home with all those slides, and he was supposed to scan them on a, a flatbed scanner. He had that had a slide attachment. And so back in those days, I mean, I was talking to John quite a bit, and I wasn't working or anything, so I mean, it would be late at night, and like 3 in the morning, we'd be chatting on uh, AOL Instant Messenger, and he's like scanning the slides and sending them to me as he scans them so I can see them. And one of them is of the carded figure rack, and uh, there's a, clearly a Boba Fett. It's like 1979 Toy Fair, you know, and it's like, I'm like, John, look at, look at that. I mean, it looks like the card looks different, you know. It's like, it doesn't look like the regular 21-back Boba Fett. And uh, he's like, yeah, 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 and he's looking through the slides, and he's got another one. It's a close-up of the same thing, so he scans that, and he sends it over. This is all in real time, and I get it, and we're both looking at it, and we're just like flabbergasted, you know. It's like... <laughs> Completely different. Like, I can't remember exactly what it is, but, like, the, you know, the, the traditional one has the fireball with the text and everything saying that, you know, it doesn't say anything about a removable rocket or anything. And this one in there, I, I think it mentions on the card that it has a, a rocket firing mechanism. And the card is different, and it's different in a way that couldn't be really, you know, faked. You know, it's like you, you know it's real. It's like, and this is 1979 Toy Fair. And it's like, holy cow, this is a carded Boba Fett, and it's probably rocket firing. And right. I think it had a rocket firing Boba Fett standing next to it on a little stand, you know, oh, and you man. can see the back with the rocket oh. fire. So we're like, holy crap, this is awesome, you know, <laughs> we're like, blah, 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 blah. And immediately sending off messages to Chris and Todd and Gus. And, you know, and so that, whatever, I mean, that's cool, you know, cool picture surfaces. I swear not a month later, Eric Janicki comes up, a collector named Eric Janicki lives down in like the Maryland or Delaware area, I think it was Maryland, just randomly finds a carded Boba Fett that's rocket firing that he picks up from a guy who says he had got it at the original at Toy Fair. Like he was oh, at Toy man. Fair for some reason. 
and he asked to have it, and someone gave it to him. Some story like that, and he saved it for all these years. <laughs> and so Eric ends up with this thing, and it's like, it's going around. I think he brought it up to Tom Derby at Cloud City or something, and Tom's like, I don't know, man, I don't, this thing, I mean, anyone could make something like this, you know? Right. And the story gets around back to me and, and John and, and the other people, Gus and Chris and Todd, and we're just like, oh, my God, you know, this thing actually matches up exactly with this slide. Wow. And, uh... How crazy is that? I mean, that you would find this thing in a slide, and then someone would make this find, this completely random find, like a month later. Right. And if we had it's found crazy. that slide, people would have just been like, uh, who knows? Can't tell if it's real, can't tell if it's not. You know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But because it matched up exactly with this slide from 79 that turned up before he found it, that made all the difference in the world. Of course, he sold it for a ton of money. And I'm not even sure who has it now, but. I mean, that was just like it, it was sold at the, it makes your eyes pop out of your yeah, head. Yeah, at the 2008 premiere collectible auction, right? Wasn't that the premiere? Yeah, thing? that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember the guy who has it now. Yeah, I don't know if he still has it or not, but he tried to auction it off. Wow, but just that's one of those awesome. things where where a piece of reference material completely dovetails with like reality and kind of you know cements something as being real. Right. Um, the other story is just really brief. Like I remember. When I was doing custom figures back in the day, in the 90s, uh, just messing around with, I'd gotten the 79 products for delivery catalog, which has the Rocket Fire and Boba Fett in it, and it's the kit bash Fett, or the proto Fett, or whatever you want to call it, the, the concept, the conceptual Fett. Okay. And I remember looking at it and being like, this thing has Stormtrooper arms, and you could tell that the torso is a 3PO torso, and the legs are death squad commander you know with some alterations and stuff and i remember emailing chris about that and him being like oh man i never realized that and blah 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 and after that i started making custom figures made up of those parts uh-huh. and i'd sell them on a on a card and uh you know i sold a bunch of them to people who were just interested in having them and i used to put them on ebay and one of the guys who bought one from me on ebay um was a guy named walt steuben and i got his address he's like oh i just sent you payment uh, you know here's my address walter steuben i'm like walter steuben i'm like are you the Walter Steuben who was the big-time collector in the 80s? And he's like, yeah, 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 that was me. You know, I was on TV and everything. And I was like, I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe this guy just <laughs> buying a figure off me, you know. And he was like, oh, I still buy things here and there. And we, we were chatting for a while. And, and uh, I eventually put him in touch with Steve Stance. He was happy to, to get back in touch with him again. I don't know if those guys ever did anything. Probably just said hi to each other. But it's just one of those crazy events where someone from, like, the – Deep recesses of the Star Wars hobby, <laughs> like all of a sudden pops up out of nowhere to right. buy this goofy custom figure from you. So, oh, that's awesome. Those are my two stories. Cool, man. Those are uh, those are pretty sweet. I, I love the the reference material and just thinking about seeing the way that that figure is presented in the in the catalog for that auction. You know, it's just like this pristine, most amazing, you know, world's coolest figure ever, and just the idea that it's just kind of floating around at one point and, and yeah. matched up. Just just imagine it would not probably not have been saved unless that guy was at Twitter and was like, hey, you think I could take this? I, I think yeah. that was the story. Maybe Chris <laughs> or Gus remember in more detail, but the memory is that he was just there as like somebody – at Toy Fair, and like he asked for it, and someone gave it to him, and then the guy just saved it for all those years. And I think he'd worked at a toy store or something, so he ran into Eric and mentioned he had it. Wow! And Eric was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm interested in that." Wow, that's awesome. How, how about uh, how about you, uh, Gus? Do you have any fun stories about? Uh... Yeah, I mean, there's always you know over the years we you know I I think you know even though there aren't that many rocket fats, if you think about how many are in circulation, it's got to be under a hundred or something. But you know, it seems like we came across quite a few. I mean, I've seen L's and J's from various sources. Um, 
But, uh, you know, nothing like, I mean, definitely the Eric Janicki story is awesome. I remember when Eric discussed that at the time and, uh, and it was just, you know, he was entertaining a couple bids on it. And but the great thing about the Eric, the one Eric found, just one more thing to add on that is that the, um, the, the particular, you know, since it was a mock-up card, the photo that they used in the card was offset a little bit from the, the one that they ended up producing. So it was a detail that nobody faking it would know. So I remember yeah. when I first saw yeah. the photos, I was like, just perfect conviction that that was an accurate, you know, yeah, <laughs> screen that match. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I remember when I got the first rocket pad, I, I picked the one, you know, that I still have to this day, the L slot. It was pretty early in my prototype collecting. And, um, and at the time, I was a grad student, so I didn't have a lot of money to buy prototypes. And uh, Greg Hansen, who's a collector I knew, um, had one, and he wanted to sell it. And, you know, he wanted, you know, at the time, a lot of money for it. And it ended up, I was making, at the time, like $1,000 a month as a grad student. And uh, he wanted three grand for it. I said, well, that's like three months of my income to go buy this thing. Um, and I remember thinking... It was a really crazy kind of thought process. Well, how would you like, you know, just do that? Like that kind of sacrifice is really crazy. It's not advice I'd give people like spend three months of your salary on some item that you really can't afford. But at the time, I just was kind of bullish on rocket ring both that, you know, I just had this gut feeling that's, you know, just the demand around it. And uh, and so I did this major sacrifice for months just to be able to afford that thing. And, uh, and then, you know, of course, you know, now they go for a bit more, but, and that was worth the sacrifice. Uh, and then <laughs> it was like one of the first prototypes I picked up and then it went, you know, kind of crazy after that. Well, I was trying to, I knew you were going to ask about, you know, things we had seen, what we had turned up and I started going through some old notes and I didn't exhaustively go through it, but literally I counted 10 that we turned up. <laughs> Five of which were hand painted L slots. One of those, one of that, one of those five was the was the uh, proto molded one, which is the mm-hmm. earliest known rocket set around. Which and turned up in a garage, know, didn't it? The exact same. I, it was like no, I think it was a shed or something. <laughs> it might have been a garage. It was in this little, this little knit, knitted little. They kept it in this little knitted, yeah. little hand puppet thing. It was funny, but um. <laughs> yeah, it was it was striking. Those all those hand painted ones. And Gus was saying earlier about the L's being more common than the J's, and that's true. Except if you start getting into like those hand painted ones, there are some hand painted L slot figures out there that have more like the production looking paint, mm-hmm. um, and those are pretty pretty scarce. Yeah, but some of them were kind of beat up, and you know you have to be a real completist. I think uh, several of those ended up in that you know the famous photo for the nine. Boba Fett's in a row, and I was looking across it. I think at the time I was telling somebody, like, pointing to the Celebration 3 going, yeah, we found this one and this one <laughs> and that one and that one. <laughs> and uh, some of this came from the Earth from, that went into that collection because the Earth, and they used to have their store in Cincinnati, and they turned quite a few. I bought my rocket set from them. They were originally, um, you know, they probably had turned up at least half a dozen, you know, at the time. You know, that this was a... Uh, sort of like mid to late 90s. And um, and they're around. Yeah, so you used to track these things pretty pretty hardcore. Um, I think I was up to, I knew of about 65 or so different versions of the Rocket Fire Boba Fett. 
and I knew it was still, and years later, I would see things come up. I was like, I wonder if that's a new one, or and I would try to figure out, is this a new one, or is this one that's gone through, and keep putting the chain of ownership in there to know, oh, this is the same one that was here, and here was the original Kenner source, and, and trying to track them that way, so... I mean, they're still rare, but, you know, it's, it's still, you know, that, you know, that kind of quantity is, is still around. Of course, nowadays you see them, they're very, very often beast and everything, which is, which is fine. I, I'm not a big fan of having that giant COA case with the, with the rocket type, but, uh, Wait, 65? I had no idea, Steve. Yeah. How, how many did you think there were, Steve? I mean, I, I think, I didn't think there were that many, but, uh. Yeah, that's not that rare. I mean, that's one of the reasons I never... Really got one. I remember Gus being kind enough to hook me up with a chance to buy one for like three or four k, like a long time ago. And even at that time, being like, but of course now I regret I didn't regret I didn't buy it just because it's worth so much more. But it's always been one of those things that always was kind of like I'd rather hold on to my money and maybe get something else, right? Just because it seemed like just one of those things that there's they're around, you know. But you know, certainly. The value of them is enough to just buy it to, to say that you're going to buy it as an investment at this point, you know, if you get one for cheap enough. Right. Well, I think, you know, see that I was going to go to the nugget, but I think we, we yeah. should head into Market Watch instead. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking sure. we're talking money. What do, you, what do you think, Tommy? You haven't talked in a while. You want to go to Market Watch? Sure. One dollar flicks. Market Watch. At least he doesn't pick on you in a Jurassic 3 sort of way. Yeah, right. <laughs> you ever heard about a Compasaurus? <laughs> you guys are going to watch it and you're going to be like, wow, that guy sure is insightful and perverted. That actually makes me That's like a gay dinosaur movie. <laughs> uh, all right, so, so let's, let's, let's talk money then. Uh, so... I mean, what's the first sale you can remember? We'll go back to uh, we'll go back to Gus. What's the first sale you can remember of a of a rocket firing fit? Yeah, I guess the earliest ones I remember were um, the few that I, th- I think I would guess the Earth turned up a couple, and it ended up being the genesis for the story of um, of you know the Tomarts ran. So Tomarts did one of the earliest stories on rocket fit, if not the first. And and they got an L slot. I think they got an L. I'm going to try to play this back. I think they had got a J slot out of it. Anyway, they there there was a couple that turned up from one. I think it was a tester at Kenner, who um, like I think Steve Sansui got his one of his um, like his J slot from that. I think that's where Greg Hansen got his L slot. So there were a few that turned up from the Earth at very early on, and it was and 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 one was sold to Tomarts, which was the one that they had in the story about the L and the J slot. Okay, and that sold for how much? Do you remember? You know, I don't. Yeah, I don't because a lot of these were other folks who bought them. But I thought they oh, were right. on the of three thousand dollars, like that range. Okay, around three. So around three thousand dollars and around ninety nine, something like that. No, no, this is earlier. This is oh, uh, oh yeah, earlier than that. Four ninety five. Oh, wow. oh, okay. And then how did they go up by ninety nine? Did they go up by? I mean, yeah, I, yeah, by I mean by Star Wars. Like I think the peak for vintage sales was like kind of 97 to about 2002. Okay. Uh, 
the like five year stretch. And around there, I mean, the L slots with Rocket were getting up to like fifteen thousand, even higher. Some even sold for more than that um, at peak. Uh, and so, and J slots, some of them were selling in that range as well. Um, so yeah, I think the high. I mean, there were some I'd heard. You guys can chime in if you heard other ones, but I heard some going as high as like eighteen. But fifteen, there were multiple that sold at fifteen around that time. Wow. And but I mean, one sold last month, right? For how much, Steve? Do you remember? I think it was about twenty twenty thousand, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's about twenty. So it seems like wow. Okay. Yes. Ouch. Yeah. Which kind was it? I didn't see that. Uh, It was, it was, uh, well, Tom Derby uh, codified it as the one that was going to be sold to Ron. Um, So I think it got a premium. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) it was the one that Gus offered him for three. No. Uh, No, you know, I have it right here, actually. Uh, CIB. um, Let's see. Boba Fett, L slot, rocket firing. And. that's wow. pretty much it, and it's you know God, it's got the big the big paper, yeah, and it sold for twenty thousand. Um, just documentation wise, um, the earliest mention I can fi- I've found about a rocket fet is in um, what do they call it? TKRP, um, which is the Tom Kennedy radio program. He ran a had a classified publication he put out um, that collectors huh. used to advertise in in the early eighties, looking for stuff. Wow. Steve Sansweet used to run big ads in these, and I have some of the copies of them. And he's the only guy in that classified publication who's looking for a rocket firing Boba Fett. And this is in the early 80s. Oh so that's God. an interesting little wow. data point there. Show you how far ahead of the curve he was. <laughs> yeah. And also, if you could find it, uh, there's a zine called Report from the Star Wars Generation. I think that's what it was called. Okay. Um, which is in zines, which is like pre-blogging, pre-internet being a big thing. Right. Uh, early 90s that had a whole issue devoted to is there, is there not a Rocket Prime Boba Fett? And this is like the, maybe like 92 or something like that, which is a pretty interesting little like piece of paraphernalia. And I think what Gus was talking about, the Earth finding the J-slot, they did a Tomarts issue where they announced the existence of that in about, 94. I don't know exact, exactly what issue it is, but I remember vividly, before I even knew Gus or Chris, seeing that Tomart article where they described the J slot as being a new discovery. And so it's, those are things yeah, I, that people who are history minded can probably try to dig up just to yeah, have it, thought, you know. I thought the Larry Hines ones, you know, which were fake, uh, turned up in early 94, and I thought those predated Tomart's. Because Tomart's yeah. kind of set the record straight on what it was the first time people had really good photographs of the prototype yeah. rocket fets, and and I thought that might have been later '94, early '95 when Tomart's came out. Because the Larry Hines thing I remember happened while I was on vacation when he was selling, like when Chip had one and all that in early '94, and I was on vacation and I came back and I heard all these people. When I came back after it was a long vacation, I came back and like three people I knew had Larry Hines rocket fets during the time I was out. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And so, uh, Tommy, did you know about this radio show from the early 80s that has Steve Sansweet asking for rocket vets? Oh, sorry, Scott. He, came, he, he, he had yeah. a radio show. Oh, okay. That was like his main business, but he also on the side. The, the radio show, I don't think it had anything to do with Star Wars, but on the okay. side he published. He sold Star Wars stuff through catalog, and then he had a 
classified publication he put out for oh, okay. to look for stuff. I was picturing like, like the Tradio or something where it would be like, you know, like a young Steve Sansweet <laughs> being like, hi there, I'm looking for rocket fats. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just a... No, they're just, they're just like little print ads, you know, okay. it, it's an interesting publication though, if you can find it. I mean, he was awesome. selling back issues for a while. Yeah. And yet you had, you had, I mean, are those in uh, your scrapbook, Chris? No, that's all just, uh, cause Chris Joglius' scrapbook, right? Has all the old sales. I can take a picture for you if you want. Um, but Chris's scrapbook is Toy Shop. Right, it's just Toy Shop. But yeah, if, if you want a who's who of like vintage collecting in the real early days with the original guys, like TKRP catalogs are it. Like that's where all the yeah. games at the time were collecting uh, vintage Star Wars. It's really interesting and nostalgic to see. Yeah, well, I think we have a we have a, a mission. That sounds great. The, the report yeah. from TKRP. I'll some of them. Yeah, that's awesome. So then it's, it seems like it went from. I mean, were they – so it seems like they, they went from being found to being sold for $3,000 with, with little in between, huh? Just kind of they, – they were sort of – once you realized what they were worth, there wasn't a period of time like proofs or something where they were sold for 20 bucks between people or like as far as you know, Gus, there's nothing I'm like that? I'm not aware of any – yeah, any no. sales of, of authentic ones uh, for cheap early on. Um, and I think it actually took a while for people to get good photographs, and it was really Tomart's break. I think they were the first to really break the story with photographs of, of one. Right. Um, even though some people had them prior to that, like Tom Nyheisel had one, um, and and he you know he's had his since he was at Kenner in the late '80s. Um, but uh, but so there were people who had them. Steve Denny, of course, had some from late '80s. So there were people who had them, but they just didn't seem to get photographed um, and and well known in the community what they would look like till later. And I'm not aware of any sales for very cheap in the early um, in the early '90s or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's possible, right? They could keep going up. I mean, what, what do you think, Chris? Could they possibly go up? I think they definitely dipped down, and it didn't seem that long ago where they were kind of down. It was like sub 10,000, you know, eight, 9,000. And then it seemed like in a short amount of time, the sales, you start seeing the sales jumping back up to where they were. It didn't really, didn't really surpass their high point, um, you know, as far as the stand, like the standard Boba Fett was the, the standard Rocket Fett, like the unpainted L-slot. That's sort of like the one people know the most. It's identifiable. You know, and then some of those specialty ones are definitely they they surpass. You know, they were selling for the in the low twenties. You know, um, you know, and the carded one sold for I think I, they were asking like a hundred thousand dollars or something at this at the, the that PCA auction back in '08. I think it was in right. San Diego Comic Con. But um, will they go higher? It's hard to it's hard to know. I mean, the thing is, you know, for a time when they were really they were being found and gobbled up at the same time and the prices were really going up. But it's been years since, you know, they've really turned up. So I think most of the initial supply has run out. I think the ones you see now are the ones that are going back into the um, into the marketplace and they're being graded by, you know, Tom, like collectible investment. And, you know, I think people are accepting that sort of like the standard quote investment grade rocket set, you know, right. you get it and it's got the, the, the COAs inside it, um, you know, and, and, and you know, people have that's their centerpiece and if you have, you know, room to display it with the way that's vertically um, oriented like that. But, uh, 
And those are the ones, you know, you see on eBay, and I think people have more peace of mind. I think before people may have been more reluctant, but I think right. just the visibility of that piece, you know, it's, you know, you, you, you gasp, like, oh, wait, there were 65 or whatever. I mean, there are so many vinyl cake Jawas out there that still sell for a ton of money. <laughs> right, you right, know, right. That people pay a lot of money for a high-grade 12-back look, and that's not, and there's tons of those things out there, you know. And right. So it's, it's really demand, and that that's just such a high visible figure that, um, you know, will it always serve? I mean, the thing is, you cross a $10,000 threshold, it's really a psychological barrier for collecting, you know? And, yep. and, <laughs> yeah, man, that's pretty That's pretty good stuff, Steve, right? I think I mean, we've, we got a lot of history with that market think, watch. A lot of history, that. a lot of market watch, you know, kind of keeping it keeping it current. I guess the way I think of it, and maybe this could go into a comic book collector like Tommy's mind, is, you know, every time, you know, Detective Comics number 27 sells for 500000 everyone goes, oh, my God, it'll never sell for that much. But then the next person who wants to own the best comic book spends a million. And then everyone says, oh, my God, it won't be, you know, I can't possibly stay that much. And you just wonder how many people with too much money keep showing up and say, I want the best. And they just keep saying they'll buy that, you know. Yeah, well, really established hobbies always seem to have that, Holy Grail item, you know, the yeah. Honus Wagner card, or you know, the Detective Comics, whatever it is, that, right. you know, is always going to keep setting new precedents because it remains the pinnacle of this hobby. So, right. I mean, I guess the question is: Star Wars is a big hobby. Is action figures the the quintessential Star Wars collecting arena? You know, if so, is the Rocket Fit the quintessential piece? Right. I guess it's one of them. I mean, I don't know if it keeps going up, but I mean, why not? I mean, other big items have kept going up. So yeah, I mean, yeah. On that point, like Hannes Wagner card, the high water mark on that was two point eight million for a near mint one. So, you know, you know, there's a lot of headroom, and not yeah. that the Star Wars thing will ever get to that point, but but uh, <laughs> lots of Wagner cards have sold in hundreds of thousands. You know, to get right. an idea. Right. Yeah, that's no. probably the Hannes Wagner card of Star Wars collecting. Yeah, that's yeah. A, a good way of thinking of it. Yeah, and I, I think on some of those, it's like condition is so such a big deal. It was funny. I was just watching American Pickers the other day, and they had an amazing fantasy number 15, 15 the first edition, of, first appearance of Spider-Man. Yeah, 15. Well, the high-grade one had sold for 900000 but their copy was pretty, it was good shape. You know, it was it was $4,000. They still <laughs> that have that with the rocket jets. They're like all good condition, you know, so right. there's not, there's not a, so it's actually it's a better precedent. Like they're all sustaining the high value versus there's this really nice one, and then the rest of them are one tenth of that. And that's not the case with these, where it is with like the the Honus Wagner cards and and the comic books. It's really those particular few graded high graded ones. That it's not like the overall all those books are that yeah. expensive, you know. So you sort of hit this peak with the, the rocket sets are fifteen grand, but that's they're all sort of like that. They're not. There's no two thousand dollars ones because it's you know. You, there's really not any beat to death ones that, that you're really going to find. You know, most of them are in decent shape, so right. they're all comparable. Except for the one that eventually kills so Steve when he chokes on it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, maybe we can go to a, a, a nugget, and I think uh, for that, it is a nugget from the archive. It is a nugget. They're gorgeous. From the archive. Oh my god, they're gorgeous. Oh, it's a 
Um, so, Tommy, you're going to have to get near the microphone. This is now the nugget section, and I said, should we do this one or that one? And you just came up with a, a better word than sub-nugget. What did you say we should call it, Tommy? The bi-nugget. Yes, we are going to do a bi-nugget, which again ties into Jurassic Park 3 <laughs> quite well. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> what did you find there, Timmy? I found it. I think his name is even Timmy. Like, it's that funny when you watch this movie. It's like, what do you know about dinosaur bones, Timmy? All right. Uh, <laughs> is Rick Oley in it? <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. Okay. Um, all right. So I, why don't we start with... Uh, Let's start actually with this conceptual sketch, and right. then we'll get back because I feel like we're we're running perilously close to being rocket fedded out. Um, <laughs> so, Steve, you, you found this, and the write up was done uh, on the archive actually by Lisa and Vic. Although I assume right, that right. that you guys know a fair amount about this, I'd never heard of it, Steve, until you sent it to me. What, what is it, no, Steve? I, I'd never heard of it either. It's a conceptual sketch for the the sea serpent that Boba Fett rides in the holiday special. I'll, I'll be honest, I still haven't even seen that segment of the holiday special Dude, i just know what? seen little clips here and there but obviously it's a concept that uh was short-lived with uh, <laughs> the failings of that whole enterprise but uh it's a really neat drawing of this crazy creature that he's flying around on um and it's neat that it, it actually survived and it seems to be like a pretty big piece too they had to kind of do a double scan to get the whole image there but uh it's kind of goes along with though that chewy family that uh never really materialized but uh, i just thought it was a neat piece of history because the holiday special did air in november and it was also boba fett's debut right so right oh yeah it's right, right around right now now yeah. now uh, chris gus Heron, do you know is there any chance this made it to a further stage of production than just these drawings do you think i think uh, it's plausible but i don't think it's probable i mean i think uh, you know i it, you never know with this stuff but um but uh but i haven't seen any evidence of it Okay, and that's that's true. I mean, I mean, when I see this, Chris, when I look at these pictures, it really looks like part. It looks like it's drawn on a napkin or stuff. I mean, when, yeah, we're, yeah. when we're looking at this, at what phase do you think this was? I mean, it had to be commissioned, right? I mean, do you think this was what phase of production is this considered? I mean, they do concept stuff all the time. We find people with piles of just drawings and, and whatnot. You know, it's so easy to get an in-house guy or just a contract guy to come in and do a bunch of drawings. You know, in an afternoon, he's cranked out a ton of this stuff. Just, you know, just that's how to get the initial ideas down. So, you know, just a preliminary sketch probably. I mean, I remember when this came up and putting it on here for them, and it was in Tomart, too, it mentions here. I mean, I would, yeah, Gus is right. I mean, I would guarantee you this really, I I don't think it ever got off of paper, let's put it that way. Like, right. I I would be surprised if it did. Right. Kind of cool to see. That's kind of like yeah. Loch Ness Monster. One of my pet peeves, well, I don't know if pet peeve is, maybe it's too strong, but when people, I always try to call these things conceptual stuff, because sometimes people are like, oh, this is an unproduced toy. It's like, well, I guess technically, yeah, it was never made, you know, but... To me, like the Rocket Flying Boba Fett is an unproduced toy, or that plush Ewok with the, the, the what was that one called? Zephy. The one, yeah, Zephy is an unproduced toy, like stuff that was really like made and then never released. Although, right. I guess that's really unreleased, not unproduced. But these things, I mean, there's probably some stuff we don't even know about that was mooted, or sketched, or talked about, and then never made. You know, and this is just kind of an interesting doodle that someone made based on the holiday special that probably never went anywhere, you know, other than this. 
Ah, it's crazy. All right, well, let, let's get to our our second uh, our second of our bi curious nugget um, is going to be the kit bashed Boba Fett prototype. Now, uh, Ron touched on this briefly. Um, this is now I, I don't know about you, Tommy. Uh, I like to refer to this era of the archive itself as the Marble Era. Do, do you do that too, Tommy? I definitely do notice the, the different backgrounds, yeah. So so there's a long time, right, when you first started, Gus, tell me if this is true, where yeah. you just you always use this kind of uh, marble paper background for your entries to the archive, right? Yep. Yeah, we did. And then we changed it when we moved all the data over to the database, but, but the, you know, to kind of have a, the MySQL database backend. But the problem was we didn't really finish the transition ever, so there's a whole bunch of this stuff that's still out there. That has the old background, right? Well, like a time to, capsule. yeah. To me, yeah, exactly. that's like yeah. that's like the double racetrack on the Star Wars card. Like, yeah. you can't get rid of the marble. That's that's the charm yeah. of the archive. <laughs> it's a, that's that's the equivalent of vintage. Um, before like the stupid podcast and all that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so tell me, what, what is this kit bashed? You know, it's almost like another vocab. But what is this piece? What are these pictures that we see? Oh, I mean, I just, you know, described before, like, you know, figuring out that the pieces on it were from other figures, which I don't think I'd ever heard before, and making the custom figures. And, you know, kit bashing is a term that model makers use when they take other other parts, parts from other stuff and kind of like, especially model kits, that's where the kit comes from, and kind of just bash them together to make something else. So that was kind of where the term came from. I don't know if anyone else ever called it that, but I, I remember starting to call it that when I figured out it was made from other parts. And right. I think that's what I've used to call it when I entered it on the archive. And I know this, I'm looking at it now. Chris beefed it up considerably with some better photos and some more information later on. But when it was first entried on here, it just had a tiny photo, the scan of the insert to the final case, okay. and then the picture from the Collect All 32 store display, which I had, and then just had kind of, some information about kit bashing in general and then what the figure was made up of and so on and so forth. And I don't, I'm not aware of the figure before it was on the archive ever being discussed in a magazine or anything like that. So it was kind of like, I think people were like interested when it was first released, like, Oh, Boba Fett, you know, I knew that that figure in that picture in the case was different, but I never really thought about it. And that kind of started a, Ball like ball rolling of people thinking about that figure, I think. And like, I know we all had one friend who was who we did a lot of Cincinnati trips who was obsessed with finding it after he saw it on the archive. Right. And he went all over the place asking people about it and never really came up with any good leads to actually find it. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the story of the entry. And like I, like I said, there was a lot more information turned up later, better pictures, especially through, especially Cloud City and huh. some of the stuff they turned up from Kenner employees. And Chris went back and expanded it here where there's, a couple, he identified a couple of different versions and it's really worth looking into the history of it all on the archive there because you can read how they're different. Um, so, I mean, he yeah. changed some of the the write-up and added some other information on there as well. Now, in all of your talks with, like, sculptors and stuff, has there any, have you ever talked to them about how that firing mechanism worked? Because it's not an L-slot or a J-slot. It's like a little well, button. I, I believe it's – someone identified it years ago and told me it was from a Shogun Warriors figure. That's what I thought. And, and I thought I identified it – I'm trying to remember. This is years ago in, in a picture and saying, yeah, that looks like what it is. And I seem to remember we talked to, to Kenner people about it. I know this friend that I mentioned who – 
was on the hunt for it. I remember him having some very specific information about the backpack and the firing mechanism. What it was now, I can't remember. But, yeah, I believe it's pulled from another toy. That's a Japanese toy. I think it's a Shogun okay. figure or something. Most people's first first um, first time they saw this was, like, on the back of the car. And after, for years, I think most people thought it was a painting. I always thought it was a painting, of, like, a, yeah, including a drawing. And I think that, that case, we saw, saw the inside of the case, like, my gosh, that is a real figure. And that painting was just a highly airbrushed version or maybe just a ver- airbrushed copy of that. Of that of an actual figure, and then later on we found the spec book, and then there was a lineup of the new nine figures, you know, making all the, the twenty back figures, and sure enough, there was that Boba Fett figure. And, and I don't know if there were multiple ones or if they took it and reworked it. You know, we I think it was, the, it was the Kim Simmons photography that turned up years ago when Cloud City had, and, and Tom lent us these um, images to put on the archives. We had the two two distinct versions of the Bash figure, but it always seemed like they took it and tweaked the same figure right. rather than build a second one. But I don't have any proof of that. And they said they don't, nothing's ever turned up for those as far as a real figure goes. Now, this is, uh, I, I, I didn't know this question existed. And now that I'm asking it, it must be a stupid question. On the back of a 20 back, that's not a painting? Or, wait, what? I was thought it was, I'm looking at it um, now. I want to say it's airbrushed over, but I have to go really look at it. I think I think it's mostly painting, but um, uh, but yeah, I think that's why we were thrown off. Is that it might have started with a photograph, but but uh, and, and it's mostly airbrushed. But um, I think that's why a lot of people initially assumed there wasn't really a kit bash piece because some of the the biggest reference was, you know, the twenty backs. You know, the, those were that's where people were seeing them in this. You know, and and. Uh, and and then later when you get the close up of the whole figure, you go, ah, okay, I see, it's a it's a figure. But we have the on the archive we have the art images of the artwork of um, from Nyheisel's collection, so you can take a look and judge for yourself if you think there's right. any original photograph in that. Yeah, well that that'll be uh, good for the, yeah. the enhanced version of the podcast. Because yep. uh, try nugget. No, I, was, I didn't mean to say, say that it was a photograph painted over, but it was of that style. Like they took a picture and posed it and sort of like painted it in that exact shape and then when you saw the real figure like oh my gosh it was just painting of this actual toy it wasn't just somebody drawing it like a cartoon piece from scratch right yeah no it's it's pretty amazing that is uh probably the the biggest white whale out there right i can't imagine a a figure that people would want to find more than that it's got to be uh it'll be a big one the interesting thing is it's the kind of thing you would imagine someone saving you know right i mean one thing you learn looking for this stuff over the years is that a lot was saved, you know, especially, you know, things like the Rocket Fire and Boba Fett. People saved those. Like, this may have been tossed at some point, who knows, but I wouldn't, you know, at this point, it wouldn't shock me if it's sitting out there and someone saved it. Like, who knows, you know. But it's certainly true that not a lot of hacked together kit best things have really survived, so that's consistent with that. You know, you just don't see that many handmade models right. that have turned up over the years. But hopefully well, someone has it. We'll see. You don't hate, only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. The unloved and the unnatural. Uh, anyway, so had you guys come up with any good unloved and unnatural uh, Boba Fett items that you would like to showcase or talk about? I got one. Oh, thank you, Tommy. 
on uh, on page one eleven of the uh, second edition of the Tomart's Guide, they have household items, and they show a Boba Fett hanger for clothes that you'd mount on your wall. And I looked for that thing for years just because I thought it was crazy before I realized that it was just something thrown in to, like, uh, root out people who were stealing content from the Tomart book. Oh. I think those things are awesome. Like, next to it is a is an Admiral Akbar clothes hanger. Oh, man. Wow. Like, it, there's a... There's... Uh, there's Fett. There's 3PO, Vader, and uh, the Imperial Guard. And wow. I, I don't know if those are, like, internal photos from Adam Joseph or what, but those things are awesome. I would buy those. Now, this is the problem, right? Because you can't scan anything from Tomarts. Not even to scan them to say, isn't it great how they do these weird things about scanning them, right? How is anyone ever going to see this, Tommy? They can use their imagination. Or you could make an <laughs> argument that it's fair use for educational purposes. Hey, hey, yeah. Hey, that's why we hang out with the I lawyer. I can yeah. draw something on it, and you can claim it's parody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like Paris, like Paris that's, Hilton. That's the ticket right there. <laughs> All right, good. So, Tommy, can you please uh, scan that in or something or other or find it? Because I've never even heard of those. Oh, they're, they're awesome. I, I think it's definitely unloved in that it was so unloved it wasn't even made. Right. <laughs> wow, Boba Fett, uh, play clo- fake clothes hangers. Now, see, is that a collectible in and of itself? I think it is. Yeah. All right, anyone else have one they want to jump in with? Yeah. Um, You know, it's really hard with Boba Fett because, like, if anything, he's the most overloved character in Star Wars. Of course. But but, uh, I would say the Topps Candy Head. So I was just, like, checking while we're talking, checking out on eBay. I saw an auction end for – it was actually five candy heads, but they were about a buck a piece. So it was a vintage item, Topps, Empire Strikes Back era – and the candy head goes for about a buck or two. Um, oh, wow. And yeah, and you know, it's like one of the few vintage FET pieces that I don't think anyone really cares. Yeah, and those <laughs> things are great. I mean, I have very vivid memories of, of playing with those. I can taste the candy. Ooh, that's what we can do for our next archive party. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Couldn't be any worse than the three PO serum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great on the item too. You know, because it's just one color. I think if it just had a little bit of color on it, other than just the flat green, people maybe would would bite. But it's just so cheap, you know. But yeah, it's a, it's an Empire era. All right, uh, how about you, Chris? Do you have any unloved uh, fat items? I know, I know Gus loves his Boba Fett cake pan, and so he loves that. <laughs> but I would think that was probably another thing that that doesn't get too much uh, press. Oh, absolutely! T- tell us a little bit more about the about the Boba Fett. Gus could probably tell you more. Actually, I, mean, I think the cooler unloved item would be the underoos. Okay. That's sort of semi love. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a certain amount of people that do go for the underoos. It's probably uh, best that that's unloved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I told you guys the story that. Uh, I, I made you know I had to get the Chewbacca underoos, but I specifically asked my wife to get them for me for my birthday, and I said you have to get them AFA'd because I'm not gonna have anyone <laughs> thinking that I took them out or anything. So I, I proudly have like the only AFA'd, you know, like they need to be absolutely acrylically sealed. But yeah, no, no, those are great too because you have to divide underoos between you know two different kinds, you know, like the ones that imitate the costume and the ones that are just the pictures of the person. Um, but you know what? Look at that, Steve. Have you looked at the Boba Fett underoos lately? 
No, not in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Not since I put them on. <laughs> but, They're but, in the washing machine, right? Yeah. The the colors are actually kind of uh, kit bashy colors. Like the, it's a really strong yellow, and uh, it's kind of a darker green than you actually associate with Boba Fett. And the the blue's a little bit lighter. I don't know. Is the store display for them where they have like the kid wearing Boba Fett. Underoos standing in front of Boba Fett, <laughs> and then like the kid wearing Vader underoos standing in front of Vader. It's just disturbing. In the not so distant future, on a planet called Earth, it's underoos. Star Wars Boba Fett is here. That means Darth Vader's always near. C3PO has lots of style, and R2D2 just makes me smile. Star Wars underoos are here. Yeah, something out of sight. Oh, don't be so ridiculous, R2. Underoos are for Earthlings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Gus, tell us more about the cake pan then. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I actually think if you look at some recent eBay auctions, there's actually some love for the cake pan. It actually still does okay, but, um, but uh, yeah, I, the um, for me it was the report from the Star Wars generation that we talked about earlier that fanzine that came out in the early '90s. That thing it was hilarious that you know that John, John Snyder did wrote this fanzine that was really popular until uh, Lucasfilm lawyers got a hold of it and then they made him like an editor for the Insider. But anyway, in that he had a story where they talked about the Boba Fett cake pan and just made you know just jokes about the Boba Fett cake. I just thought, oh man, that's just such a ridiculously cheesy thing, you know, and so, you know, that's for me, I think the attraction of Boba Fett cake pan was that, that article and that, that, um, cause the, the, if you ever get that fanzine, it has lots of kind of references to collectibles in it and the Boba Fett cake pans mentioned in that. So that's, I think part of the draw. And actually we use our cake pan. We've made m multiple Boba Fett cakes with ours. So I don't, I don't, I actually don't even own a mint one with the, with the, uh, you yeah, know, paper piece on it. Uh, I just use the cake pans. Yeah, I see that. That's where you get into trouble, Steve. At a certain point, you know, things be go from unloved to cult, and it's like, yeah, that's true. I mean, by the time we're done, the fun poncho is definitely going to be oh, firmly entrenched in cult and not just unloved. Um, <laughs> whereas some things will stay unloved. Like I think the candy head will stay unloved. Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, the cake band's pretty sweet. Uh, was that everybody, Ron? Did I ask you if you have an unloved uh, fed item? I'm at a loss. So I'm just gonna. I'm at a loss for Boba Fett items, so I'm just going to mention that I think Dash Rendar items are unloved. <laughs> I think that's a cult item on the horizon, Dash Rendar items. I would actually, I would actually buy Dash Rendar items now. He might be in the new movies, man. He's a big, you know, popular cult item. Yeah, don't but it's so, it's so, was that 97? Yeah. Eight? 96. 96. Yeah. I would totally, I would totally buy some of that stuff now, just for laughs. Yeah. He was like Han Solo, but not yeah. Han Solo. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he had yeah. the pads, the armor. Yeah. Was... <laughs> yes, he was Han Solo in Catcher's Gear. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I think, I, even one image, you kind of look like Kevin Costner or something. He reminded me of him. That's just, Didn't now I'm picturing Jordan that. Did he post for him or something? Yeah, Jordan used to say he posted <laughs> characters based on him. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it is an anagram, Dash Rendar, Jordan Hambra. You just do the math. 
Um, it's like the name too. It's like you can picture marketing people around a table. Like we need something exciting and edgy. How about yeah. Dash Rendar? Yeah, it's, it's like that. Like, like that <laughs> Simpsons. Like that Simpsons Rendar. joke. Like Dash Rendar, but you know something not as lame. And then he like leaves the room. It's like Gucci on the exactly. Simpsons. You know. Oh yeah. Totally market tested character. Um, yeah, Dash Rendar. He like killed that game for me because like the rest of it was cool, but he's just so generic and so bland. You could tell they were just trying to make a cross between Boba Fett and Han Solo, and and his his like the ship he rides around in too was like the Millennium Falcon, but not the Millennium. Falcon. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's not canon because it's in, it's in Hope now. Oh right, yeah. It's like the like the over Mos Eisley and now in the special editions they oh, added. Oh god. Oh god, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the Centennial Hawk. It's uh, really good. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I, I do like Prince Scissor, Prince Scissors, or whatever his name is. He was kind of cool. <laughs> um, uh, Actually, the 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 Leia from Shadows of the Empire is one of. Uh, they had a poll, and it was one of the most requested, like, figures or something a while back. Wasn't she dressed in the, the bounty hunter disguise, though, from Jedi? I mean, it was just the normal. No, no, he, he gives her, like, a gown, I think. Oh. In the novel, in the novel, which I actually read because I used to be, you know, a geek. Nothing <laughs> wrong with Shadows of the Empire, man. It's a good book. It, it was like... Troy Denner? Like is he guy who wrote it? I think is why people liked it. Oh. So there you go. So I, I think that's probably why people wanted to see that in action figure form. I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, I and, think... And, Steve, have I ever told the story of the Shadows of the Empire Chewbacca on the Kivecast before? Uh, the, the Snuva? Yeah. I think you may have Jimmy made reference to it. Yeah, you, you've mentioned it before. Okay, because yeah. that, I mean, that that was how stupid I was. I spent a lot of energy driving all over Boston trying to find a Snuva. I was convinced because I couldn't find Snuva. You know, I had every other Chewbacca ever made, I thought. And I was like, I just can't find Snuva. And that was with my brother, Lobart. He was like, you know, there's this site called eBay. And if you get <laughs> this, right, yeah. and Genesis. I remember typing it up, and that was the first thing I ever got from eBay, and I bought it on my brother's account. I didn't even get it for myself, and I set it up, and it was like the second iteration of the museum. I remember thinking, I remember honestly having this thought in my head. My Chewbacca collection is complete. <laughs> I, I tried to Thank buy you. a Dash Rendar hard copy from Ron once, but it was already sold. Oh, man. Oh, that's so, when we had all those hard copies. That, that's when we, we, I think, got a huge find of Power of the Force 2 hard copies. They're all painted. Huh. And we got them back to the hotel. You know, we bought them from somebody and we got them to the hotel and we're on the bed and like one of our friends was sitting there and a lot of the hard copies had guns and some were hard copy and some were plastic guns. And he's sitting there on the bed and he's trying to figure out which are hard copies and which are plastics. So, of course, he's bending them to see which ones will break oh, no. because the ones that break are the good ones, right? So he bends one, breaks. He goes, that's a hard copy. <laughs> Breaks, that's a hard copy. Bends another, we're like, no! Wow. It's like testing for wedges. <laughs> I totally remember that. was hilarious. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, I can't tell if they're hard copies or not. I'm like, well, don't break them. <laughs> well, I just looked on eBay. So Snuva ones were sold recently for $1.73. Oh, hey. <laughs> I would have paid fifty back back then. Oh. Guy, this is yeah. uh, 
That's something you should do, Scott. Uh, is like... Nuva is twice as good as a Topps Boba Fett candy. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> What's that say? I know. Uh, Scott, you should do an episode on the, the early days of eBay. I was talking about this with someone the other day, and it's pretty funny to even think about eBay in the days before pictures. Yeah. <laughs> like written descriptions. That sounds awesome. Uh, you can leave feedback for anybody back in the day. It's just like the wild and wooly days. Oh, that's awesome. I got feedback based on uh, another site that I didn't even belong to. They left me <laughs> negative feedback and I dealt with him on this site and he ripped me off. Like, I don't even know who you are. I don't belong yeah, to Yeah, it used to just, you know, funny to think about. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember sitting there thinking, like, am I ever going to get this snuva? You know, I thought it would just <laughs> never happen. Um, I remember an, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Tommy. I remember an auction watch that was, like, prototype uh, early bird Star Wars figures. Very rare prototype. Like, 99 cents or something. No picture. <laughs> <laughs> and part of me now... Like, years later, wishes I had just put in the dollar to see what it was. Like, stick them in the mail. Yeah. yeah. People forget that, you know, 90% of the stuff on eBay when it started it seemed like to have no pictures. You're just, like, yeah. scrolling through lists of stuff, you know. It's just crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that if it weren't 1220 a.m., I'd say we should launch right into it. But uh, <laughs> that sounds like our, uh, you know, our next maybe uh, roundtable. You know what's funny, Steve? I think... When we put out this episode, you know, people are going to give feedback and they're going to be like, yeah, the Disney stuff was great and it was cool hearing about Fett, but just talking about uh, Shadows of the Empire, that was really just awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, still looking, I'm still looking for prototype Shadows of the Empire Galoob stuff. That stuff oh. is hard to find. I can right. find the original trilogy stuff and the, uh, the prequel stuff, but the Shadows of the Empire stuff, it's not out there. Yeah, right. it's not. I, I mean... I have a couple shadows pieces that, I, you know, I'll even admit to owning still, like the, um, like, uh, like Shizor's ship, um, uh, blanking on what it was called, but, um, but I have a few, uh, Verigo. Yeah, that's it. Virago or Verigo or whatever. There's um, some sketches and presentation boards I have of that. I always loved it because it's an unproduced vehicle. I mean, they were, they were designing it and there's a mock-up they made of it and stuff, but they never made it, but. Um, I always love to find that ship, and uh, and I have a couple, you know, presentation boards and sketches from it. Um, but that's about the only shadows thing. I have a couple also figure mock-ups, but uh, like there's some Boba Fett um, card, you know, different kind of card designs and things that actually look better than the whole Power of the Force two cards. Some the ones they rejected seem to be better than the ones they ran with. Right. Um, so there's some cool Shadows prototypes, actually, that they were considering. Unfortunately, they ended up going with stuff that wasn't as good as, as the discarded ideas. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is true. Where else are you going to talk, have you know, lengthy discussions about Shadows of the Empire <laughs> prototypes? I mean, it's true because, I mean, I don't think really even modern collectors – it's almost like Bendems or something. You know, it, it, in a strange way, they seem to f fall between the cracks. Like, I would definitely get excited about – you know, I have a couple like uh, Snuva proofs now, or I call them Proovas. Um, <laughs> I have a couple Snuva proofs, and I'm just really excited about those. And you know, the Power of the Force two stuff, you know, is cool. But there's something about that that Shadows of the Empire stuff that's really cool. And Boba Fett's in it to kind of bring it all full circle. And it's the official plot of Episode Seven. <laughs> <laughs> As long as Captain Panaka's in it, I'm happy. That's right, yeah. It's Captain Panaka versus... And IG-88, they, they team up. Uh, 
Oh, whew. Man, Steve, well, what, what do we think? Have we uh, taken off of these uh, good folks' time? Uh, it's been it's been quite a night, for sure. Yeah, it has been. I, we sort of wanted to have a, a feedback section. Is there anything beyond having a early days of eBay? Is there anything else you guys, being sort of, you know, actual uh, important people with the archive, anything you'd like to see happen more in the show? or uh, Why don't we start with uh, Tommy? I am enjoying this podcast because usually I listen to the podcast and feel like chiming in, but you know, then feel like an idiot as I just <laughs> say my comment to the living room and remember right. that it's a podcast and you're not there. So this is a much easier format for me. All right. Cool. <laughs> How about you, Gus? Anything uh, as the uh, sort of uh, in the grand uh, moth of this whole uh, ship? <laughs> well, you know, I... I agree with Tommy on like I, I actually like the interactive format I actually think that that is pretty cool like you know I know we've always done interviews in the past but having a group of people you can really riff and bounce ideas and I think it's kind of fun um, new idea I don't know how often if you've done that before that many people together but no this I was I, really I was it. terrified of doing this because <laughs> I thought it was going to be the entire time of all of us just going oh no you but you know, as as always, Chris is very helpful with, with his advice, and he said, you know, make sure you have it. So you look at my thing, and I I say, you know, Chris, how has the market changed for Rocket Fed throughout the years? Gus, last L shot sold for two thousand, you know, whatever. Like it, it didn't didn't wind up being the same as I wrote it out, but uh, keeping it clear. But yeah, and no, I I think we should do these more. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. I also think you should have a regular series of Mark Salati telling an uncomfortable story from his life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, Steve, I think, uh, I think that probably should be it. Um, I I would say, yeah, we'll maybe try and do it again. Maybe six is too many, but maybe we'll try and do like little things of here and four. Maybe just kind of pick up a topic as time goes on. Or so sure. you know, I think six is too many, Steve. They'll record it and just send it to me. I'll <laughs> I'll put it up. We we'll have to deal with us. You can just talk about uh, uh, talk about all that stuff. Cool. Well, uh, why don't we uh, say uh, a big uh, thanks and a big wampa wampa to our uh, our esteemed panel? Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, guys, Steve. Hey. Uh, oh wait, wait. Tommy has a final thing. I, I had a final thought on the on the Disney uh, Lucas film purchase. Oh goodness. Yeah. Uh, Lucas uh, Disney paid four billion dollars for Lucasfilm. Last year alone, they made three billion dollars on their princesses line. Oh <laughs> wow! So that just goes to tell you, show you the the size of the companies. Wow. That's what, a lot of money. What, one additional thing I'd say that kind of tie a little bit to vintage and Disney. So if you reflect on how much you've spent on Star Wars, one of the interesting ramifications of Disney buying Star Wars is you can now buy stock in Disney and actually own a piece of Star Wars. Like it's the first time ever huh. you actually make money in some sense off Star Wars. I thought that's kind of profound. Like I'm going to go buy some Disney stock just to say I own a piece of, of however small of Star Wars. You know, it's a small snippet of Star Wars, but um, but uh, that that I thought was kind of interesting. And, and and the other part of that is that because Lucas is now giving all of his money to charity, you can say that every dime you've paid to Star Wars, either buying new figures, seeing the movies, paying the convention fees, all ultimately went to education. So essentially, I buy all my stuff second market, man. Yeah, all right, you do, but you know. <laughs> but, but on that 
just on that point though like i that's isn't it i don't know the details of the deal but he made a lot of money over the years isn't this the amount of money of the comp selling the company but the profits he made over the years i thought when in like he did other may have done other things with it i'm not sure of the details of how much he made over the years on star wars but i didn't think the deal with disney was all the profits he's made on star wars at all time i thought they'd made quite a bit on pepsi deal and all that kind of stuff right well i'm just trying to justify you know the fact that uh I, I still buy a lot of stuff from Star Wars for the market. So <laughs> thanks, Gus, for moving yeah, my jerk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, no, it's, this is great. I think what we should do too is just, uh, yeah, this, this is nice and easy. We could do this. Maybe next time we do it, we'll like talk for more beforehand to get more of the, the easy flow going, kind of kind of getting used to it. That'll be fun. Sounds good. Cool. Well, uh, uh, nice swamp womp everybody. I'll let you know when it's all up, and we'll uh, see you around. Bye, right, guys. Thanks. Thanks, guys. See ya. Cool. Wampa wampa. Adios. This podcast is not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, Hasbro Toys, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at www.starwars.com. The official Hasbro site can be found at www.hasbro.com. Star Wars all names and sounds of Star Wars characters and any other Star Wars collected items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or the respective copyright and trademark holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the Star Wars Collector's Archive, unless otherwise indicated.